are live, and I am live. Game Changers with Vicki Abelson, and my guest tonight is my friend Mason Reese. Hi, Mason. Hello, Vicki, darling. How are you? You know, I'm so happy to see you. I, I haven't seen your face since we About had lunch. three years. Uh, two, actually, I think. Two, is it? Okay. It wasn't long ago on the Upper West Side. I was there for some yeah. graduation, I think. We yeah, sat outside right. in a cafe. Yeah. Buddy ate lunch with us. Yeah, well, Buddy goes everywhere with me, so yeah, he's right here so, on the floor. Uh, oh, you have to we show. You have to. You have to show. Oh, I... see, that's my thing. You have to show everybody, Buddy. So at some point, I will. Okay, you'll show him at some point. Okay, I'll... so I'm just opening another screen so okay. that I will be able to um, answer people's questions. Yeah, I can't see them though, right? Only um, you can. The only way you'll be able to see them is if you open up it up on your phone. Which you could oh. do if you wanted to. It I, might bastardize your. I, I, I will try doing that. Okay, I should have put us on five G before I started. I didn't do that. It's all right. I think we're doing good. You um, know, this I this is a brand new camera for me, and it says that it's 1080p, but I don't yeah. think it's really 1080p. You know, I yeah, I know. I have one of those webcams too. I don't know what they what they. Your your picture looks really good though. Well, that's good. Yeah, your that's picture good. looks great. Um, everybody, yeah. how, how do we look in sound? Everybody, tell us. So, um, I'm sure we're going to get questions. So we'll we'll deal with that. I hope so. I hope so. so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's so all right now. I can relax and just enjoy looking at you for a minute. Oh yeah, absolutely. I haven't seen how, you. How is it that you haven't aged in 33 years? But, I'm sorry, but neither of you. And actually, we know each other, I think, even more than, well, yeah. About I, mean, I, look at that, I look at that picture that you posted today, and I, and I marvel at it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, no, I was like, no, I look different then. But I was also very stoned then. There was that. There was that really? You didn't know? No. Always, 24-7. I was a total pothead. I was like... I, I had absolutely no idea. You were always a consummate professional. Yes, I was. No, I, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm being honest. You were. Yeah, I, I had you a... Never, you know. never seemed like you were losing your focus or, yeah. you know... No. no, I worked hard to, uh, to, but, okay, so let's, let's talk about that. Cause you told me you have a story. I asked Mason right before we went on the air. I said, Mason, is it okay if I ask you about using and drinking? And, and he said, yeah, because I've done this. And I know that yeah. about you. I have never, yeah. okay. Exactly. So, tell, so tell well, me the story I, of that. Well, there is a caveat. I have had a couple of surgeries and they did give me some lovely morphine and Dilaudid after okay. the surgery, but that's right. in the all so right, well, let's just talk about that for one second, because I had yeah. once, and yeah. I understand why people become junkies. It's amazing. Oh, my God. And, and Dilaudid is even better. No, come don't even tell me that. <laughs> Dilaudid is seven times more powerful than morphine. Is that true? 100%. Oh, my, I can't even imagine. And I was on the pump, you know, the pump, where you can- so You could just you make know. it as high as you wanted? No, it's it's regulated by a computer, okay. but but mentally you have like you, you feel more at ease because you think that you're in control of the medication. <laughs> you have an illusion of control. Yeah, <laughs> you really have no control. I mean, like, yeah, once every 12 minutes, it will give it to you. That's pretty good. You, oh, yeah. But you can click it 100 times in a row and it's not going to do anything. 
I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> so, okay. So you were surrounded. Okay. For those of you who don't know, Mason knows everybody on the planet. If people think I know a lot of people, you know, a lot of people plus. So I think you know more, but okay. We won't get into that pissing match, but okay. So you're, you're, so you're around and pretty much everybody, you know, back in the day that we knew is loaded. Yeah. Okay. Oh, so yeah. how, why not you? What, what, how did you bypass that, that temptation? I think in my very young years, yeah, it really stemmed from the fact that I had great parents mm. who really didn't drink or smoke or anything. My father was a cigarette smoker. That oh. he was. I mean, he smoked probably three packs a day for oh, most wow. of his life. But he would literally have six beers in a year. So alcohol just wasn't a big thing for him. You know, he was a hard worker. And unfortunately, a big smoker. Although, interestingly enough, even at the age in his 80s, when they checked his lungs, his lungs were white. Stop that. Vicky, I swear to you. Had he quit years before? He did, but he cheated. You know, he went behind his second wife and, you know, did his thing. He'd go to the bathroom, you know, he'd go for a walk and he'd do whatever, you know. Yeah. And years ago, there was this thing called Smoke Enders. I don't know if oh, you yeah. remember. Oh, sure. Right. Well, he flunked out of that program <laughs> a half a dozen times. <laughs> yeah. And then what he did was he, he had big coffee jars. Yeah. And he would take all the money that he would have spent on cigarettes and put them into the jar. And I mean, when he was in, you know, his good phase, he would save thousands and thousands of dollars in a year. So, you know, it was it was really amazing. But ultimately, he was a failure when it came to quitting. Um, now, I seem to recall you with a cigarette in your hand, no? Only for a yeah. photo? No. Okay. okay. Oh, my God. Now, let's skip forward to a little bit later in life, right? Yeah. Let's say the China Club days, the Spodioni days when I'm 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Right. It wasn't my parentage at that point. It was the fact that I personally was a control freak. That I didn't, what I mean, what I mean by that, to clarify, I didn't want to control others, but I always wanted to be in control of myself. I, me too. I never wanted to feel like I was anything but who I am as a human being. Right. And that's just, that's not me. So those are the two answers for why I never really got into it. Did you try? Never. Never? The only, Vicky, the only thing I did is I would take a swizzle stick or a drink stirrer, right? right. And I would dip it. I don't know if you could, yeah, my hand is in there. Okay. And I would <laughs> dip it and then I would go, oh, God, horrible. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I tasted one of my dad's beers when I was like 12. You know, right. it tastes like piss. <laughs> like, why would you want to drink this? You know, <laughs> You never tried no. to do No. 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 Never. Never. This is not my thing. But you I mean, have to be around people getting high all the time. Oh. <laughs> Every day of my young life. I mean, whether it was in the nightclubs or in the places I played in my band or whatever, including my band. <laughs> yes, of course. Five minutes before they hit the stage, we'd go outside and, you know, toke yeah. up. And then... <laughs> I mean, Al Chez, who was my trumpet player, 
has been sober, I think, for 25 years now. So oh, I don't think I don't think he, would, he was down in Long Island iced teas before a set, you know. Oh, yeah. So and I don't think he'll get upset with me for saying that. No, no, no. He goes um, public on Facebook that he's sober. Yeah, yeah he talks about his sobriety. Um, you know, but everybody was stoned in my band when I would play. But yeah. damn, we sounded pretty good for a bunch <laughs> of stoned out guys and one sober one, you know. Um, so, hey, it is what it is, you know. So that's actually how we met. So before we go through the history of your life, let's, let's, yeah. do you remember, do we remember meeting each other? No. I'm trying to figure out if it was at Spodiotis or the China Club. I'm not sure which. Well, China Club was way before Spodiotis. It was before Spodiotis. And weren't you involved in like a Wednesday night live thing at, at well, China Club? Oh my God, of course it was before Spodiotis because you played yeah. at the Rock and Roll Cafe when I was still at the Rock and Roll Cafe. The Rock and Roll Cafe was before Spodiotis. Oh, way, way before Spodiotis. Well, Spodiotis, yeah. I think, opened in 88. Yeah, 88 or 89. 88, yeah. And I know that my band, actually the last time that the band, as you know it, yeah. with those guys, the last time we played was Halloween night of 89 at Spodiotis. I and it was on it was on one of Matt to Matt's Thursday Night Live, you know, events, yeah. which the best musicians ever, like, got up on that little tiny, you know, two-foot stage, you know, mm -hmm. and and jammed and played. Um, I mean, those are some magical nights. They really were. Um, but, yeah, so I, yeah, we met at China Club. We had to have. Yeah, we met at China Club. I'm maybe sure like 86, maybe, thereabouts, maybe. Wait, when? 86, maybe? Yeah, I'm going to say it was 86. Seven at the latest. That was, and that was the days of hanging out with Camaletti and... Uh, yeah, Rob Camaletti. Uh, I actually spoke to him recently. Have you? I, I yeah. wish I every year. I, I actually yeah. saw Rob. Actually, it's been about 10 years since I've seen Rob. It's been a while. Yeah, he looks great. Now, you, your picture, by the way, just completely died out. Uh-oh. I'm here. I'm here. I can still see me on Facebook. I see no, that. hold on one second. All right. Hold on one second. Because we're, we're a little, little There you are. Okay, okay, I got you back. Okay, good. So uh, back. I am the... computer. I am computer illiterate, by the way. So it's a miracle what I did just now actually worked. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So Johnny, I don't even know what I just did. Johnny B, the doorman from the China Club, ended sure. up. Sure. He ended up being my doorman, like when I moved to Rock Girl and true all, all kinds of places after oh, that. Okay. Okay. And, uh, so I remember Johnny was on the door back in those days, and uh, I'm trying to remember who was around. And do you remember um, Paula uh, and Joanne? My, I had like a trio of girls. We were the women who loved too much. Anyway, we used to move in a pack. And no, uh, <laughs> no well, you were the, you were the standout of the pack, so it's okay. <laughs> well, anyway, so and now tell us about your band before we go backwards tell us about the band because you've mentioned it a few times so tell us tell i mean I, I, I mean i played drums but i was never accomplished i mean i never had a resume you know okay, it's not so like how, I was, how, how did the drumming start for you how did you become that how did that happen oh i started playing when i was about 14. Yeah. um I, mean, I think that's probably a late start in life actually um never had any training i didn't know how to read music certainly um Never had a drum lesson in my life, wow. but but my father, when I was a young guy, uh -huh. I know you can't I know you can't see the top of my desk, so I'll go up here. 
Okay. When we would ride in a car together, he would always tap on the top of the dashboard. Right. You know, and my drummer, my, my oldest brother played bass and drums, both. And we all listened to Motown and funk and soul and R&B. Right. Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, the Stones. I mean, you know, back, you name it. Right. And that just heavily influenced me. And I got behind a kit and I could actually do a simple 4-4 rock and roll beat, you know. But then I progressively played more and I learned more. Now, how I actually got the level of musicians to play with me, I will never know. Because <laughs> it wasn't like they were making the $1,000 a night. I mean, we were getting paid five, six, seven hundred a gig, right. divided by six people. Right. You know, I would donate my salary back to the band, so it's an extra twenty bucks per person. You know, big, <laughs> big deal. You know, but they liked doing it, and we had a good time. And okay, so talk about know, who was in your band. Well, I mean, the, the 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 leader, quote unquote, of the band was not me. It was really Benny a guy named Harrison. Benny Harrison. Yeah. And he played keyboards and he had played with Phoebe Snow and uh, the Young Rascals, uh, Felix's band, when he put his band together, and right. just a lot of other people. You know, he just played with a lot of New York. Well, all, and all your people, all the horn players, for, well, Bruce and, and, and yeah. Al from the world's most dangerous band. Yeah, the, 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 band. the trumpet player and the sax player, Al Chez and Bruce Kapler, were ultimately ended up being the Letterman horn players. Right. Um, minus Tom Bones Malone, who was saying hello to you earlier. Uh, yeah, I love. I'm a huge fan. First of all, The Blues Brothers is one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> I mean, it's like that's like. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. So did to you, me, it was did you see the HBO special on Belushi? By the way, Showtime special. No. Just no. Came out. It just came out. No. It's no, but I, I want to. I have it. Yeah. yeah. Showtime, you said, right? Yeah. Yeah, I have Showtime. What's it's it called? Belushi. Oh, that's yeah. easy to remember. <laughs> it's been easy, yeah. I just if, saw even I'll remember that one. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, we weren't doing it for the money. Right. Clearly, you know. <laughs> and But we had so much fun. And getting to play with the level of musicians that I did kind of made me step up my game a little bit. Right. Although I remember we played a cruise one time and the boat was kind of rocking a little from side to side. <laughs> and it really screwed up my time. Like right. my time was like, you know, going like with the boat, you know, basically. And we played two sets that night. And Benny, Benny who was the leader, basically, of the band, right. chewed my ass out so bad. Why? In between because I was horrible. Oh. My time was fluctuating all over the place, you know? And he said, dude, he said, dude, either you get in the pocket or I'm not playing with you ever again. Oh my God. In the second set, I got in the pocket and uh, we were fine. You oh know? my God. And we played the Rock and Roll Cafe, which was your joint. We played there, I think three times maybe in total. And one time Phoebe came down and sang with you guys. Oh, I have the picture God. of it. That was so amazing to have a legend like her. And by the way, I did not know she was coming. No one told me. And we ended up doing a song. I believe we did Bring It On Home to Me, which uh -huh. was like one of, her, you know, one of her famous songs that she was really known for. I never played that song before in my life. Really? So I'd heard it. Right. I'd heard it. Right. But I never played it. 
you know. Wow. So it was like total improvisation for me. And I just had to like, I would like be looking at the bass player, looking at Benny, looking back, you know, just like, uh oh, okay, where are we going? Where are we going? Where are we going? You know, because I didn't who know. Who played bass with you? I don't remember. I don't know Eddie Perez. Oh, um, Eddie, sure. Yeah, Eddie played bass. And the, the, the one person I know that Eddie played with at one point was uh, Matt Guitar Murphy, who was the other guitar player in the Blues Brothers. There you go. Um, oh, Lord, I'm having a brain fart. Um, uh, the main guitar player, I forgot his name all of a sudden. Oh, uh, Steve the Colonel Cropper. Okay, Steve yeah. Uh-huh. And then there was Matt Guitar Murphy was the other player, the rhythm player, basically. Um, and I know that Eddie did a tour with him at one point and played bass for him. So, you know, these are really good musicians. Yeah. And I don't even know how I got them. Okay, so wait. So, Mason, you didn't take a lesson. You didn't read me. Oh, never in my life. How, how did you teach yourself to, to play the drums? By listening. And I, I, and I, how did you know what hand does what and what foot does what? And I don't even know. I just instinctively had a really good sense of rhythm. Right. Uh, especially, especially for a white boy, um, <laughs> you know. I, what I came off the I came off the the stage at China Club one night, and I got the greatest compliment, and I mean this with all love and sincerity. The guy said, "Dude, you play like a black guy." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my God, that's the greatest compliment that I could ever be given." You know, as a, as a Jewish white boy from the Upper West Side, you know. To be told I play like a black guy? Oh my God, that was like the pinnacle of compliments, you know. Um, but that I don't know. Like, I've never taken an acting lesson either. Is, it's like okay. how, we're, we're gonna go back and talk about that. I just have okay, to yeah, yeah. one shout out because a bunch of people on the thread mentioned Bobby Held, and it just so happens um, that Bobby was my jam master for years. I don't know if you know that. Yeah. Yes. 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 He ran my, oh my for God. years. A bunch of people. A bunch of people. I didn't look at the. Uh, yeah. yeah so many. Com- We're going to go to the comments later. I'm, I'm okay. Right, yeah, now, yeah. right yeah. now, I'm just like liking everybody's comments, but I'm not really reading them. I just Bobby's name just shot out at me a few times. But oh, that's great. I love Bobby. Uh, I too. love Bobby. Great, great bass player, by the way. Great, great, great bass. And a lot of people player. didn't even know that. They just like knew he was a funny guy that was always right. around. You know. Um. Bobby talk, about somebody, talk about somebody who knew like every player in the world. Oh yeah, I mean, Bobby knew everybody. Like everybody. And he could play like every song ever written. Yes. Like, he was an encyclopedia of musical knowledge. Yes. Um, something I, I could never claim for myself, you know. I mean, he could play Zeppelin, then he could play jazz, you yeah. know, then he could play Motown, then he could play hard rock. You know, he could Bobby could play anything. Um, unfortunately, I don't think Bobby's on really on Facebook. He's not, but I'll so I'll, send him, I'll send yeah. him the, I'll send him the YouTube link. This will be yeah, he'll be very video. happy to uh, to know that he was being talked about in a in a loving manner. <laughs> not always the case. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm sure Bobby might have pissed off a few people in the music world over knows. the years, you know, because he doesn't uh, he doesn't filter himself. He says it the way it is, you know. He does. So, you know, he does. Yeah. For your fans, this this show will be archived and it'll be on YouTube, on iTunes, it'll be on SoundCloud, it'll be on Facebook, forever. It'll be on all those things. Anyway, so, okay, so tell Mason, tell me, because I don't even know the story. So you're a little kid. Did you grow up on the Upper West Side when you were little? I I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. 
I was actually born in San Diego, California. What? Most people don't, most people don't even know that. Oh. But I literally lived in New York since I'm a week old. Okay. So, so, yeah. so what? Um, tell me. So you're a little kid. Yeah. And you go to school like other little kids. No. Yeah, I went to, you were acting well, no. right away. No, no, no. I I went to St. Michael's Montessori. Okay. Which was up on 99th and Broadway. Well, oh, actually, Amsterdam, actually, um, was a great school. It really was. But then ultimately, I ended up at professional children's school. When did you, what year, on, how old were you when you started doing that? I think I was sixth grade. So what is that, like 10, 11, something like that? But you were um, already acting by then. Oh, yeah. Your life right. did you, you disappeared again. I'm not sure why this is doing this. Okay. But you disappeared. But I'm going to keep talking. All right. I'm just going to down I one second. You. Now your light's back. All right. Hold on. Okay. Mitch Weissman's in the house, Mitchie. Oh, Mitch. <laughs> Another one of my favorite human beings. Yeah. Another guy that, by the way, can play like any song ever written. It's Absolutely. ridiculous. Absolutely. It's ridiculous how much musical knowledge that guy has. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah. Right. So I went to St. Michael's. Now, wait, okay. was this a parochial school? Well, I, I'm not sure what kind of school it was. I, I mean, mean was I, there any, were there nuns? Was it like any of that stuff? No. No, it was regular school teachers. Now, it happened to be in a church. Right. The school was inside of a church. But it wasn't. But we never, yeah. No, no, yeah. there was no religion of, yeah. of any kind at that time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and it was a great school. I made a lot of good friends, a couple of which I'm still friendly with today, like oh, literally wow. 40 years later, if not more, 43 years later. Um, but then I ended up going over to PCS, Professional Children's School. Um, that and was a school that. Did you do that because your career was interfering with your? Um, with sure. Your, okay. Yeah, and the 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 beauty of that school was they tailored the curriculum around your schedule, right? Like a lot of the people that went there were not just actors; they were also Juilliard students and girls that were in uh, School of American Ballet, oh, SAB. Wow. Mm -hmm. So we had a mixture of performing children, right? But did you go all the way through twelfth grade? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I my mean, husband I... went there. Gabe Abelson. He got thrown out of Dalton in senior year and went to the professional children's school. I don't think. It, it, I... I mean, it, I don't know if it's the greatest school educationally, <laughs> but it's the greatest school for performing kids. Right. You right. know, but there was also. Um, Oh, uh, what was the name of the school for uh, fame was was based on? Performing arts, high school. Performing arts, right. That was another one. Right. Yeah, basically the same thing, same thing. So now, did um, any kids you went to school with become? Well, Brooke Shields went there. We, we weren't there at the same time, uh -huh. but I'm basically one month older than Brooke. Really? Yeah, yeah. So I'm born in April, so she's born in May. Why didn't you go at the same time then? She just wasn't there. I don't know why. Maybe she was, you know, doing movies or, or maybe she came back in when I was out. I mean, literally, that's not how we met. We met at the China Club many years later. Right. But um, but no, 
Milton Berle. Was opening night of True Blue, and you were there too, by the way. Okay. Do you remember True Blue on 69th and First? Uh, do you, uh, anyway, yeah. No. You weren't high. I'm surprised you don't remember. That wasn't where Magic was. No, it was where Rascals was. Oh yeah. And then I did it for about a year. I'm a, I, 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 well, and it was called True Blue because Blue was the owner, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. With Tommy and Blue. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, I love Rascals. That was a great bar. Uh -huh. The funny thing is, I used to hang out at so many bars and clubs <laughs> that like the natural and logical assumption was anytime I had something in my hand, it was probably alcohol. This is Coke Zero. So you know, I remember uh, that about you. Oh, Matt to Matt's yeah. on. Hey, Matt. Matt. Hey, Matt. Matt's in the What's house. up, my brother? Um, I remember you always having like a Coke or whatever. I remember yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, once in a while, I would go a little crazy and have a regular Coke. <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> but but good thing I live close. I wasn't driving, so it's okay. So, okay, so when, when was... How did you... At what point did your mom say, okay, we're going to go audition for something? What made that Four happen? Years okay, Four years old. Yeah. What happened was there was a woman who lived in our building where I grew up on West End Avenue mm -hmm. on the Upper West Side who had a son that did a little bit of modeling and a little bit of print work. And he might have done a commercial or two, but he was mostly a, a, a little child model, really. Right, right. And I mean, she just thought that I was so precocious and so outgoing and so adorable that literally she like nagged my mom for two years. Wow. Now, my mom had been an actress back in the 40s. She did. A lot of movies in Hollywood. Um, she name, was actually name one, or, name one or two that she. Well, was the big movie that my mom did was called *The Big Sleep* with Humphrey Bogart. Get out of here! She was she was the second female lead in *The Big Sleep*. Oh my yeah. god! Wow! But she wasn't she wasn't listed as Sonia Reese, so a lot of people never made the correlation what was that, that I was her name? son. I was Sonia Darren was her stage name, but. If I explained the story, it would take about eight hours. She never got credit in the movie. She's uncredited, but yet she has a huge fan base because people just do research and they find out. You know, it was a thing with Howard Hawks and and the, and you know the studio. There was there was a whole mumbo jumbo in there. Did she but not sleep with someone she was supposed to sleep with? Is that kind of the deal? You know what? I talked to my mom about the casting couch. Mm -hmm. She said she never really got a lot of pressure. Um, she yeah. was actually invited to come over to a poker game <laughs> at Groucho Marx's house. Poker game, yes. Yeah, poker, exactly. <laughs> Liquor in the front, poker in the rear. You know, um, which she did not go to. Mm -hmm. She kind of probably knew better, you know. Right. But she never actually had to sleep with anyone to get a part, you know. And my mom, I know it's going to sound crazy coming from her son, gorgeous. Yes. Beautiful. Yes. I mean, I don't know if you can find any old pictures of her online and somehow get them up, but stunningly good-looking woman. Um, classically beautiful. So hmm. anyway. Oh, oh, okay. So to get back to you, the initial question. Okay. Um, my mom really didn't 
think it was a good idea to carry me in one arm and diapers in the other. She just did not think that was a good idea. But Vicky, at four years old, I could memorize a script backwards and forwards. What? How, yeah. how, when, did, when did you start reading? Three. Three. Wow. You know, I had an incredible memory. I could literally cite a memory, you know, like By cite the way, memory. Jeff Kleinman is saying that, yes, your mother was beautiful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, so yeah, well, he, he knew my mom since he was 12 years old. So absolutely. Wow. Uh, um, Doug is one of my oldest and dearest and longest friends. We've known each other for 43 years, wow. kind of just about, um, since we're both about 12. Yeah. 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 I'm just a little older than Doug. So I was at his bar mitzvah. <laughs> Oy. That'll tell you how long ago that was. Um, and I'm 55 now, so there you go. Um, so when I was four, my mom approached the subject to me, like I'm an adult, like talking to me, like, what do you want to do? Would you like to do this? And I said, yeah. Okay, wait, had and you been in any like little plays or done anything? Nothing. No, 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 no. But we found out very quickly after they gave me the one page of dialogue right. that I could memorize a script backwards and forwards and it was a kind of memory period or do you have like i have a really good memory but i'll be honest with you i don't have the attention span anymore yeah um i find myself now finding it very difficult to read a book me too like maybe one chapter at a time but i really like i i can't i don't have that anymore like maybe an article in the New York Times, that's about it, you know? Mm -hmm. After that, I just start, you know, my mind just goes everywhere. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not happy because, about that. Do you know why it is? I no. believe it's because we spend so much time on social media and everything is little short little bits and we've lost the ability to sit and focus. That is absolutely a distinct possibility. Right. I mean, I have very mixed feelings about social media. While on one hand, I love reconnecting with people mm -hmm. and I love doing things like this and letting my fans know that I'm, you know, appearing here or there, whatever it may be. Right. It, it is, and I'm coining a word, maybe I should copyright the word. It is dumbifying <laughs> the nation. It just is. It's literally melting the brains of, of people out there. I think that's just my personal, you know, my thing. Um, and I don't, I don't really use it a lot. Like, I don't have a lot of Twitter followers. I don't have a lot of, of Instagram people. I think I have. No, you're uh, very big on Facebook. You Facebook. Facebook. I, and I, yeah. yeah. And I have a really good engagement with people. Like I, I just posted, you know, happy Thanksgiving the other day. And I got like 1.4 thousand likes. That's insane. All I did was wish you a happy Thanksgiving. You know, got like 400 comments, almost 1400 likes. And it's, you know, so that's kind of like where my niche is right like my people that's my yeah. people so <laughs> anyway so i went to this cattle call audition and yeah. for those people who don't know what that is it's hundreds and hundreds of people all in one room like cl crammed into one room and i ended up beating out 600 kids for the part because i was small number one number two 
I don't even know if I look like I was four. I might have even looked younger, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I could talk. And I could listen to the director when he said something. And that kind of was the start of my career. And that really launched everything. So, okay. So what was that like for you? Um, did you realize what was happening to you? Did you feel, did. did you know you were different than most kids? Oh, I, yeah. Yeah, I knew I was different than most kids because I didn't really like to be around kids. Ah. I really preferred to be around adults. I mean, I was taught how to play poker by a stagehand when I was six. <laughs> so, you know, I always preferred the, the company of older people my entire life. Uh -huh. um, I still do. I'm still not a big fan of kids. <laughs> I know that's probably not a very politically correct thing to say, but, you know, I don't really like being around them. But the nice thing is, I can be with them for a little while and then I can leave. That's, That's right. the beauty of it. You know, Cause they're not my kids and I never had them. So, and believe me, I'm not upset about that either. But you have Buddy, so. I do. He's yeah. my baby. Yeah, he's but, right. you know, more than likely he's only got about four more years on the planet. How long have you had Buddy? I've had him for eight and a half years, but he's 12 now. I adopted him when he was three and a half years old. Mm -hmm. So if he lives to be 16 or 17, that would be a beautiful thing. It will, without getting maudlin and bringing the whole crowd down, that's going to be a rough day. I can't even imagine. I mean, you treat Buddy like he's your baby. I mean. Yeah, I yeah. do. Yeah. I mean, he literally flies with me on the airplane. He, I take him into restaurants. He goes everywhere with me. Yeah. And. It's it's gonna that's gonna be a rough day for me. Yeah, I don't know how you prepare for something. Anyway, like that. on a happier note. So, on a happier note. so okay. But so I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what I really understood. Commercial? Go ahead. What's your first commercial? The first commercial was for Ivory Snow laundry detergent. Okay. okay. It was basically a local ad. It was well regional. It was New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. It was not national. Right. I subsequently did commercials for them that did go national, mm -hmm. but the very first one was, you know, tri-regional. Right. And it was it was a tremendous success. We actually won. I think we won two Clio awards that year. For those that don't know, that's like an Oscar, but for advertising. Right. We won, I think, for best product. I don't even know, best household product or something. Right. But that launched me into doing more commercials, okay? And then ultimately, in 1971, even though it didn't come out till 72, but in 1971, I shot the Underwood Deviled Ham commercial. Okay, that, that's, the, that's the game changer from what that's, I... Yeah, right. to coin your phrase, that was the game changer. That changed my life, literally changed my life number one i won the cleo that year for best male actor in a, in a television commercial and then all the talk shows picked up on it okay you so know, let's now, talk about your life as a talk show guest right now dick cavett who's yeah. a wonderful interviewer he was the very first person to ever have me on as a guest and a funny story with that yeah. was i was not 
the primary guest that show. Okay. Gina Lola Brigida. Oh my God. Yeah, you know, 72. You know, this wow. is how far yeah. back we're going now. Uh-huh. She was the primary guest. Okay. But Dick ended up loving me so much that I ended up taking another seven or eight minutes out of her time. And wow. she was not happy. My wow. father subsequently told me that in the green room, she was pitching a fit. <laughs> she was not happy that this little seven-year-old brat was taking up her time. Because she probably didn't like kids either. <laughs> probably not. No, probably not. Certainly not, you know, some smart-ass little kid who talked like an adult, you know. And Dick and I got along great. It was a great interview. But then Mike Douglas picked up on me. That was changed my life. Yeah. That made me a household name. I mean, Mike Douglas literally gave me a career. Wow. I ended up doing his show 32 times total. Oh my God. I co-hosted for three weeks of his show because yeah. Mike, Mike did something that no one else was really doing at the time. Mike would have a celebrity co-host right. that would come on the show for 90 minutes, just like he was. Right. And they would come on for all five days of the week. Right. And that was not really being done. That was a rare thing. But I don't know being done now either. I don't know anybody else that's ever done that. No, I don't either. I but don't Mike know. had no ego. He didn't mind sharing the spotlight with somebody, you know. And he had the biggest. I mean, he had John and Yoko. He had Burt Reynolds. I mean, he had the biggest celebrities of the, you know, the era. Right. But I co-hosted three weeks on that show. Wow. And he dedicated almost six pages of his book to me. Oh. Yeah. Oh, Mason, that's so sweet. And, and I don't have a lot of regrets in my life, Vicki. I don't live with regrets. My greatest regret in my life was not keeping in contact with Mike. Mm. Just didn't do it. How, I could old have. You, how old were you when you did the three weeks on his show? I was anywhere from seven to eight. Oh but then I but then I appeared on the show as a guest later on in. Then Mike, Mike a lot of people don't know this either. Mike Douglas was based in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. uh, they had wanted him to go to Hollywood for many, many years because they thought they could get bigger talent, bigger names. You know, right. and, and Mike resisted for years. He did not want to move out of Philadelphia. But finally, in 1979, the, the ownership of, of, the, of the show said, look, we want you to go to L.A. You're going to L.A. And Mike was, uh, had a new contract coming up at the time. And he ended up asking for so much money that he knew they were going to fire him. Mm. He knew it. And he was totally okay with that. He had done the show, I think, for 18 years at that point. So he was ready to retire, but I did the show once in 1979, and I actually played drums with the band, <laughs> which was amazing for me. But I was just starting to play. I was 14, uh -huh. so I really wasn't that good, uh -huh. you know, but they, they put up with me. They were nice. So. so, okay, so any highlights from the Mike Douglas show that you can share with us? Any celebrity stories that were knockouts? I mean, I, I mean, I got to work with some of the biggest people in the world. Like who? So tell, tell us some people that you Well, know. I got to tell you one thing first. So yeah. I was a guest on the show first. 
you know, and I did my I did my two seven minute segments. And uh, at the time, I believe Ava Gabor was the co-host. OK, <laughs> yeah. so and she um, was huge then because that was probably Green Acres days, right? Oh, she was very famous in 1972. She was huge. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, lovely. Oh, so unbelievably welcoming to me and kind oh, and nice. generous with compliments, you know, unlike a lot of really big stars out there who are just, you know, jackasses, you know, to be <laughs> honest. But um, what they did was, and they were very smart to do this. The producer of the show was a guy named Woody Frazier mm -hmm. at the time. And they knew instinctively that a seven-year-old's attention span is probably not very long. Right. And the show was 90 minutes long back then. You know, no one does 90 minutes anymore either. Right. That was John, a very John used to do 90. In the beginning. Right. In the beginning, he did 90. But then ultimately, right. it got shortened down to 60. You know, right. 90 minutes is a hard show to do. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a long time. Mm -hmm. So what they did was, in their in their brilliance, yeah, they figured, well, we got to keep this kid happy. We got to keep him like focused, you know. So what they would do is, they would bring on musical acts. They would bring on magicians because they knew I loved magic, right? <laughs> they would even try to book guests from my favorite shows, like they booked Leonard Nimoy <laughs> because I loved Star Trek. And that, that today is one of my favorite pictures. I have an amazing picture with me and Leonard Nimoy on the Douglas Show set. And he could not have been nicer. Oh, my God. He was so nice to me. And he explained all these answers to me. You know, how does the ship fly? And how does it do this? And, you know, how do they do your ears? You know, things like that. And a kid would ask, you know. And then they booked Peter Lupus, I, I who have... was the strong man from Mission Impossible. Uh -huh. Because that was another one of my favorite shows growing up. Now, it wasn't on the air anymore at that time, but I was watching reruns with my mom, right? right. So I absolutely loved that show. And I got to meet him. And then they brought on, you know, food segments and all kinds of crazy things that would keep me awake. Right. That would, keep, you know, keep me stimulated. But there's a story, which I don't okay. even know if you know. Okay. So... All my young life, there was a song called Cats in the Cradle. Sure. By Harry Chapin, mm -hmm. the, the late, great Harry Chapin. And even though my father and I had an incredibly close relationship, mm -hmm. something about that song made me cry. Mm -hmm. It really affected me. Because even at seven, I understood the lyrics. I didn't relate to it because of my closeness. Right. But I understood it. So Harry, I'm the co-host now, and Harry is on the show. You're giving me goosebumps already. You haven't even told the story yet. Yeah. And it's on YouTube, by the way. You can find it. It's there. Wait, I'm interrupting you for one second because somebody just asked, is there footage of you anywhere drumming? Can, any, can they find you drumming? Yes. yes. There is a live from China Club video if you type in my name on Facebook. On I Facebook? Mason Reese and Reese's Pieces or something like that. It's, it's, on, like it's not on YouTube? It is on YouTube. Oh, I, you just said Facebook. Oh, God, I'm sorry. That's um, right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a live from China Club video. It is oh. up on YouTube. Um, okay. 
And it's really the, you know, the back then the camera was like one of those camcorders that you, you know, had on your shoulder, you know, right. and, and the videotape was that big, you know, back in the day. Right. Um, so it's, you know, the, the picture quality is not the greatest in the world, but it's a really fun video. So, anyway, cool. um, so I found out that Harry is going to be on the show. And I went into the hair and makeup room before the show. And some way, somehow or another, it had gotten back to Harry that that song really had a great effect on me. And I went into the, to the makeup room and I said, Harry, are you going to do Cats in the Cradle today? And he looked at me in the eyes and said, no, I'm doing another song today. Okay. So now we're live in the studio, 300 yeah. people in the audience. Yeah. And Mike is reading off the teleprompter now. Uh -huh. And he says, ladies and gentlemen, here to perform his huge hit song, Cats in the Cradle, is Harry Chapin. I lost it. Oh. On live, uh, not on live television, but in front of a live audience. And ultimately, they did not edit this out. They could have. They could have. But they, they chose not to. I literally started sobbing uncontrollably. Because I felt that I had been betrayed. I felt that I was lied to. Oh, because I thought Harry, you were going to say because the song moved you. Well, but also because I felt that Harry had lied to me. Wow. Just to pacify me. Just to like, you know, pat me on the head and, and pacify me. And there was about 45 minutes left in the show. And I refused to come back. They did the last 45 minutes without me. Wow. Is that I, on YouTube? I, that's on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. If you type in Mason Reese, Cats in the Cradle, you know, it's there. Um, wow. And I literally broke down. I mean, I just started sobbing uncontrollably. And Mike didn't know what to do. Like, Mike just kept saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then the song came. We came back from break. And Mike had to explain to the world why I wasn't there. Oh. It was really difficult. It was difficult. Oh, wow. So that's probably my most memorable Mike Douglas show story. Um, you know, the other thing was I was asked twice to be on the Carson show, to be on the Tonight Show. And we said no. The, the, the Mason Reese team said no. Why? Two reasons. Two reasons. One we felt that we really had a deep affiliation with Mike mm. and a real responsibility to him as well. Mm. But the other thing was, well, three reasons. One, it also meant that my mom and I would have to fly out to LA mm -hmm. and we were really New York based. So that was, and my mom didn't really like to fly either. Mm -hmm. And the third one was, my, uh, Johnny was not really good with kids. Ah. Johnny kind of ripped them apart a little bit and made fun of them, okay? So now keep this in mind, twice I've been asked to do The Tonight Show, twice. No. Fast forward to Johnny Carson's last episode that he ever did. He had Robin Williams and yes. Bette Midler. Mm -hmm. Those were his two guests. I remember it well. Robin came on first. He did one seven-minute segment. And when they came back from the break, he and Robin are talking, and Johnny says, "So, Robin, what do you what do you want to do after you you know leave comedy? What would you like to do?" 
And Robin says, well, I'm thinking about maybe being the talk show host. But I would like to have really, really obscure guests. And Johnny says, well, like who? He says, I want to have Rula Lenska, who is this old Swedish actress from like the 20s, right? Whatever. Oh, yeah. And Mother Teresa. <laughs> and he gets a laugh. And Johnny yeah. Carson looks, Johnny Carson looks at him and uh -huh. says, How about Mason Reese? Wow. <laughs> it's on YouTube. <laughs> Go on YouTube and type in Robin Williams' last appearance, segment two. Wow. Now, I didn't see it. And I thought for years that that was an urban myth. Okay? Because people told me. People right. called me the next day and said, Johnny Carson mentioned your name. Well, I don't know. Okay. Well, this beautiful invention called YouTube, you know, was discovered. And now it's there for the rest of time. Wow. Of the millions of people that Johnny could have said, at that moment, he said, how about Mason Reese? I love it. So you're on the last Johnny Carson show. There you go. Technically. Yeah. I mean, my, my name came out of that man's mouth. That's all I can say. Why? I have no idea. But it did. And I'm honored. I mean, I'm, I'm beyond honored, you know, to, to, to have been mentioned by Johnny Carson. Even though in retrospect, I probably would have loved to have done his show. You know, just to say I did, you know, but I know that it would have gone rough because Johnny would have said something to me and I would have like, you know, snapped at it and then he would have just reeled me in and that would have been it, you know, because I would have said something knowing me. <laughs> so, so Mason, of all the people that you've met, tell us some of your, some of the favorite people that you've gotten to well, meet. Well, I mean, some of the people that I got to meet, obviously, on Mike's show, some of the amazing musicians that I've gotten to meet over the years. As a matter of fact, there was a, a little jazz club on the Upper West Side. I think it was called McKell's. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, on the Upper West Side of McKell's. And there was a band playing there called Stuff. I don't and remember. Steve Gadd was the drummer for Stuff. Mm -hmm. For those of you who don't know Steve Gadd, he's called Steve God. Because he, <laughs> by most people, he's considered one of the number one drummers in the history of music. And I got to meet him downstairs, backstage. And I said to him, I just want you to know, Steve, that I am in awe of no one, but I'm in awe of you. Wow. And he was so flattered by that. And he knew who I was. Mm -hmm. He recognized me. You know, mm -hmm. I was still riding the wave, you know, of, right. of my celebrity at that point. But I got to ride the bus with Buddy Rich. I got to ride on his tour bus. What? Why? Because I had gotten to know Buddy. I was really close with him the last seven years he was alive. Wow. And he was doing a drum battle out at Hofstra University in Queens. It was him, Louis Belson, and I don't remember who the third drummer was. It might have been a guy named Jim Chapin, maybe? Not exactly sure. So in the front row of the bus... Uh -huh. was me, Buddy, and Carl Palmer. Jesus. Who, by the way, I really didn't know that much about. I mean, yeah. I knew Emerson. I'd heard of Emerson, Lake and Palmer, but they weren't really my thing. You, you, know, weren't, whole, you weren't into that whole rock 
thing? No. I wasn't into the that, whole fusion. That was my thing. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't into the whole experimental fusion thing. But if, I mean, I could list a bunch of bands that I don't like that you'd be shocked. Don't like, I don't like Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. I don't like Ozzy. Just don't like it. I don't like Metallica. You know, there's a lot of, yeah. a lot of bands I just don't like, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. I think maybe I'm a little bit more sappy. Like, I, you know, I like a little more commercial poppy, maybe, you know, uh -huh. happier. Well, I do love Zeppelin. I mean, I love Zeppelin. But anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, what an honor that was, you know, getting to ride the bus with Carl Palmer and Buddy Rich, you know. And when I met Buddy, I met him in the drum department of Manny's Music Store, which <laughs> made, made that store rest in peace, too. Oh, my God. That was like a playground for me back in the day. Right. But I walked up to him and said, hi, I'm, you know, I'm a huge fan of your, you know, your playing and you. I said, is it possible somehow to get an autographed picture from you? He said, well, I'll make you a deal. You give one to me, I'll give one to you. Aww. Yeah. And we I just, we just became friends. And like I said, I mean, I, I, I mean, I got to saw him, I think I was like either third or fourth row uh, in the Meadowlands when he opened up for Sinatra. So I got to hang out backstage, but I didn't meet Sinatra, but, you know, I was there. Wow. You know, I mean, incredible stuff. Just, was Frank you know, still singing well back when you saw him? He was good. I mean, I, I think I think he dropped a notch or two. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he wasn't quite hitting the same high note. Right. Not that he could ever go that high to begin with, but, you know, he was lowering it maybe like a half step, mm -hmm. you know, um, at that point. But the man was a god. I mean, he still controlled that, you know, 50,000 people, like, you know, like literally, you know, he had you in the palm of his hand. Well, yeah, I saw Sinatra in like, I want to say it was about 87, 88, something like that. Well, this was in the Brendan Byrne arena. Right. Does that give you a time frame? Does that help? You know, that I don't remember what, I don't remember what year it was. 80s. But it might have been. It might have been right around the same time. Uh -huh. Because when I saw him, Frank Jr. was conducting, and a couple of times he had to help his dad with the lyrics. A couple times. No shit. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember that happening mm -hmm. when I saw him, but I did listen to his music, so I knew. I knew just by listening to him then, and in the past, that he. He had dropped a little bit. But he was still great. I mean, I, I, it was still... He was still one of the greatest performers that's ever been on a stage. Yeah. I mean, he commanded it like he was a 30-year-old man. You know, I don't even know how old he was at that point. In the 70s, I would imagine. Um, something like that. But he was amazing. I mean, he was godlike. I mean, people were swooning. and <laughs> Like, women were going crazy. You know, it, was, it was really an amazing event. You know, and Buddy's band opened up for him, which was incredible i mean i got to see buddy play 40 times maybe wow really you know? yeah well he played the bottom line a lot mm. oh that's a good story okay so i'm not sure how buddy knew that i didn't do drugs but somehow he did but buddy did drum drugs back in the day uh yeah yeah so, <laughs> I was hanging with Buddy yeah. in the backstage of the old Bottom Line. Yeah. Which was an amazing music venue down in the NYU area, uh, lower, lower New York. 
not for you, for the for the layman out there who don't know. Um, I know you know. Um, so I'm hanging out backstage in between the two sets. Buddy would do an early show and a late show. Right. My buddy was sitting there in his terry cloth robe with no pants on. I don't know if he had underwear on or not. I don't know about that. But he had no shirt and no pants, just a terry cloth robe and his and his and the shoes he played with. That was it. And he's popping Hershey's kisses, one after another, after another, after another. Now we're in a group. It's like maybe eight people, something like that. It's kind of like a circle, a little yeah. bit. Uh huh. And they're all smoking. And they're all taking a hit, and they're passing it on to the person to their left, you know, going to the left. Right. And when it's about to come to me, Buddy doesn't say a word. He just goes like this. <laughs> and they pass it right over me to the next person. <laughs> respect. Yeah. That was respect. He didn't even want me to feel pressured wow. by whoever was in the room. He just went, that was it. Nothing more had to be said. I, now, I spent a lot of really wonderful, wonderful times with him. Um, that, That's lovely. Yeah, I mean, really. Did he ever hear you play drums? No. 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 And I never asked him for a pair of sticks either. I never asked him for anything except for the autograph picture. You know, uh, he ended up signing, and I don't even know. I think I may have lost it because I moved a couple of times over the years. Uh, I moved to the east side of one. Frozen. All right, wait. Keep talking, though. I can hear you, but your your picture is frozen. But hopefully, it'll just write itself. Oh, okay. I'm not frozen on my end. Oh, okay. Maybe it's just what oh. I'm saying. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um. So he signed. There was a drum battle album between him and Louis Belson. Yeah. And he signed that. He signed one of those for me. But other than that, I never asked him for any souvenirs or T-shirts or any trinkets or anything. I, I never did that. You're totally frozen. You're frozen on the Facebook too. I'm here looking. I don't. I'm afraid to have you do anything because I don't want to change anything. I'm going to ask everybody out there: Are you seeing Mason frozen? Because I'm seeing him frozen on, on both. You know, it's funny, Vicky, because on my end, I'm not. I know. Well, that's why I'm asking them because they'll tell us what they're seeing. Because I don't. If I don't care what I see, but. I'm looking at it on a Facebook screen and on my Zoom screen, and you're frozen on both. Yeah, David, David Bravo. Hi, David. Hi, David. He's so frozen. Yeah, you're frozen. I don't know what to do about it. Um, I don't want you to go out and lose you. Um, damn it. I hate this technology stuff. I'm wondering, how can we get you to... Hold on. Okay. Let me see something. Hold on. I don't know why that would have happened. So uh, I'm just I'm, hold on. I'm going to put on my glasses for a second so I can read my screen. Yeah, Tony says you're frozen. Hmm. Matt says Mason has never done drugs, but he is frozen. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I'm wondering if I'm afraid if you go out, I, I'm afraid for you to come back in, but I don't know what else to do. Damn it. Well, I'm looking, I'm looking at the video settings on. Yeah, yeah everybody's saying frozen, frozen, frozen. Um, yeah, it's, it's a Wi-Fi thing. Um, I wonder if yeah. you go out of the broadcast and then come back in. 
All right. How, how do I do that? Okay. So go to where your thing says end on the right and then click that link and come back in. Okay. Hopefully we're going to get Mason back and this isn't going to be a problem. And in the meantime, I will just talk to you while I'm waiting for Mason to come back. Hi, everybody. I want to go back and read all of your comments. You guys have been uh, so great and saying so much good stuff. And um, all right, I'm, I'm waiting to see if Mason is coming back in. Hopefully Mason's going to come back in. Um, oh, you're sending up love. You're sweet. Uh, Mason, tell Vicky, wait, I'm looking at your comment. Wait, wait. Oh, there's so many comments. We're going to have to go through this. Um, somebody wanted, sounds great. Well, I'm glad it sounds great. Um, hopefully, Doug, it'll work and Mason will get back in because right now I don't see Mason yet. I'm wondering if I have to like call him on the phone. Are you guys having a good time? It is a great show, right? Thanks, Chris. I'm having a good time. Oh, thank you, Liz. That's lovely. Thanks, Laura. Um, I appreciate you guys. Um, God, where's Mason? Why isn't he coming back in? All right, let me text him and find out. Somebody call Mason. No. Hey, come back in. I'm texting him. So you guys, do you have questions? Um, I, you know, if I go down the whole thread to try and find your questions, it's gonna take, oh, I hear Mason. Am I back? Uh, you're back. <laughs> you're back. You're back and you're moving. You're 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 three dimensional or whatever it is. Excellent. Wait, did you freeze, did you freeze again? Oh no. Oh no, you're there. I can see you. I gotcha. Um, everybody's saying what a great show and what a good time they're having, and so everybody's having a good time. So it, this is a small price to pay. Are you? I think you're freezing again. What's going on? No, don't freeze. Hold on. Okay, no, I can see you. You're not frozen. You're good. Um, okay, so let's get back to what I what I was going to start to ask you, Mason. Is you have hung out with like everybody at the China Club? Can you give us some like highlights of nights that you jams you got to see people playing? I mean, because everybody played, sat in at the China Club. Oh, you're gone again. Mason, are you there? Oh shit. I hear you. Mason. So now Mason, I'm seeing your bed, but I'm not seeing you. Are you there? Can you hear me? Oh, oh, there you are. Can you hear me? Mason? Doesn't look like Mason can hear me. Mason? This is frustrating because I can see and hear Mason, but I don't think he can see and hear me. He's gone again. All right, so we're gonna hope that Mason's gonna come back again. <laughs> oh, I hate this. Technology is such a pain in the ass. Okay, so you guys out there, you can still hear me. Do me a favor and Whatever questions you were asking earlier, ask them again. There you are. Can you hear me, Mason? 
Mason, he can't hear me. Oh, I'm so frustrated. Mason. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Can you hear me? All right, I can't hear you. Hold on. All right. Hold on. Okay. I'm holding. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay, hold on. Okay. okay. Oh, we're back. All right. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Perfectly. Excellent. Oh my, oh my God. I'm so sorry for that. No, don't worry about it. It's I have absolutely no idea what happened just now. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're okay. here and we're good. We're back. Okay. So what I started to ask you, wait, sorry, people, people, sorry. people said Mason has I, I, left the I, building. Hi, Doug. Hi, Matt. Hi, hi, David Bravo. Hi, Chris Monaco and 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 Dave Swigger and Liz and all those people. Hello. We're going to go through the whole thread and, and yeah. we'll we'll try to answer some questions. But in the meantime, my, my question to you was, of all the years you were hanging out in the China Club, tell us some tell us some of your favorite people that you got to hear play, you got to hang out with, because everybody that was everybody that was anybody hung out there. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. Oh, sorry. Um, okay. I look like I look like my grandfather with those glasses on. Um, but it's getting to that point where small print. I know. I know. Oh yeah, I can't read that small print anymore. Um, luckily, I don't need them in everyday life. That's good. It's only for that little tiny small print that I need them. Um, people that weren't there, Vicky will never understand. They won't get it. They won't understand that this little downstairs, kind of a hole in the wall club, hey, right? Wait, by the way, do you know that the cover of my book, can you see what the intersection is? Yeah, yeah, 75th and Broadway. Yeah. First of all, it was uptown and nobody really wanted to go uptown. They really didn't. Um, then it was in the basement of a hotel that wasn't the greatest hotel, right? underneath a diner that was kind of a greasy Greek spoon diner, right? And it was nothing to look at on the inside. You know, it was very boring and not eventful. There was no big light shows. The sound system was pretty good. You know, was one of the best thing about the China Club was the bar. That that yes. circular bar in the middle yes. of the room. What yeah, that where you was. could look at people from across the bar it really connected people in a big way. Hugely. But but you're talking about, and, I, and I'm sure I'm sure that you talk about it very well in your book. We're talking about David Bowie, Stevie Winwood. I mean, Jagger. It, I was going to say Jagger got up, didn't he, at one point? I mean, I, Stevie Wonder played there. Like everybody who was anybody who was anybody who was everybody, mm. somehow or another got up and jammed on that little tiny stage yes, okay mm -hmm. and it was kind of a miraculous uh, thing for the time I, I mean you know we're talking i believe it was 85 when it opened i believe yeah uh -huh. i believe it was april or somewhere around there of 85 mm -hmm. and it was just miraculous what went on inside that that place um, well, how, did you, how did you get get up there? What what brought you there the first time? Well, first of all, first of all, I lived one block away, <laughs> which was crazy. Right. But then I would see David Boyd and Michael Barrett, who mm -hmm. were two of the owners of the club. I would see them in there at five o'clock in the morning, wearing blue jeans and t-shirts covered in paint. Okay. 
that's interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, one, day, one day, I just said to Michael, why do I keep seeing you here wearing paint all over your clothes? Uh-huh. Was, we're building a club. And we're actually like doing it ourselves and, you know, nailing the, the nails into the bar and, you know, doing the whole thing. Uh-huh. I said, Where is it? They said, downstairs. Now, Don Kleinman, who's listening right now, he knows because Doug was very good friends with the family that owned a place called The Game Room. What was, which the, game was the, room? the Game Room was a chess, backgammon, and card club where people would go downstairs and they had a really great jukebox and a pinball machine. Uh-huh. They, had great, they had great desserts there too. Unbelievable desserts. Uh-huh. And people were playing backgammon and chess and things like that. And, you know, I don't know what the rent must have been so cheap at the time, but right. still a basement, you know, and that's hard right, to bring right. people into a basement. So, and, and Doug was really good friends with the son of the owner and the owner. So um, basically in a nutshell, I was like a nightclub a block away from my house. Oh my God, I must go, you know? And originally it wasn't really a celebrity club. And it wasn't really thought of as being a live music venue in the very beginning. So oh, really? those things, no, it was originally going to be a Chinese restaurant. Like maybe like background live music, but not rock and roll. That wasn't oh, the original okay. idea. I mean, oh. Matt, Matt to Matt can chime in on that if he wants, because he knows he too. Is, by the way, Doug said to tell the story of um, Jerry Lee Lewis, I, whatever that is. He said Is the he think- story of us hanging with Jerry Lee Lewis. That's what Doug said. I don't remember much about it other than the fact that Jerry Lee was there. Maybe maybe Doug can, can elaborate. Um, okay. I mean, the really the only real musical story that I can tell was not at the China Club. That's my Gordon Lightfoot story. Well, let's hear it. Well, I was living in L.A. at the time in 1977. My mom and I moved out there for like a year. I had done a big campaign for Dunkin' Donuts out, you know, out in L.A. Huge campaign for them. Uh, the Dunkin' Munchkins were like the holes in the donuts. Right, right, right. They right. weren't really the holes, but they said they were. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was just a marketing gimmick, really. Um, but they hired me to be their spokesperson for them for that, you know, that year. I actually ran right. a couple of years. And my mom and I had, my mom had a lot of family in the West Coast. So we decided if we're going to go out there, let's stay for a while, enjoy L.A., and, you know, just have a good time. So... Right. I was a huge fan of Gordon Lightfoot, loved his music. So my mom and I went to, I believe it was the Universal Amphitheater uh, at the time. I don't even know if it's still there anymore, if it's called something else now. I don't really know. And my mom, God bless her, man. She knew, even at the age of 12, that I could handle myself. So I ended up going backstage after the show by myself. And she went home. And she said, well, yes, my, my aunt, God, she went home and she goes, whenever you want to come back, just call a cab, you know, call a car service or a cab and come back home. So I'm 12 years old. I'm hanging out backstage with Gordon Lightfoot and all the group and the band, whatever. How did she and know what, you'd be able to get backstage? I was Mason Reese. <laughs> Is that a good answer? That's a good answer, right? I mean, That's a good answer. Yeah, I was Mason Reese. They're not, they're not going to say no to me. 
even though I didn't have a laminate or a, or a sticker or anything. I mean, I, they just let me in there. Wow. So, you know, I mean, this was the 70s, probably a hard, tougher security now than it was then, you know. Right. Um, so I'm hanging out back there and I'm talking to Gordon Lightfoot, very sweet man, very quiet, nice guy. And he reaches into his jacket inside lapel pocket and he pulls out, and this is another old reference, a Kodak film case, that 35 millimeter film used to come in. With yeah, the little, little black things with the gray lid. Oh, and yeah. you flip the lid off, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he flips the lid off and it's full to the rim with Coke. <laughs> I, never, I had never been around Coke, but I knew it was Coke. I mean, it's right. white powder. I think I know what it is, you know? <laughs> And at 12 years old, he offered it to me. He, you know, put the, you know, the big Kodak thing and he handed it to me. You know, so, but at 12 years old, I had the common sense to say no, but I did it in such a way that wasn't embarrassing. Hmm. I just said, no, no, it's okay. Thanks. You know, now to his defense, maybe he just thought, hey, you're Mason Reese. It's Hollywood. Right. Maybe you're really hip, you know, right. you're hanging out. Right. Okay, what's the possibility? But I thought to myself later, what a freak. We we're not allowed to curse, right? Yes, you are. You're you on Facebook a lot? Of course. I just thought to myself, what a fucking piece of shit. You know, like offering a 12-year-old blow. I mean, oh yeah. I mean, maybe he thought I was older. I don't know. I really don't know. And I can't think for him, you know. But that's kind of like my craziest musician story really um and it didn't happen at the china club although hold on there's more okay i remember one night hanging at the at china club and it was after four o'clock in the morning they had locked the doors and it's me the owners of the club chris saleo i don't know if he's watching chris, or not. chris is on on my show a lot it comes on okay yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I don't know if he's listening or not. I don't, even I don't, know. Know. I don't know if he's but on he was, he was general manager at, at uh -huh. this point at the China Club. And I think maybe one security guard at David Bowie oh, and a girl that Bowie was with, whoever it was. And Bowie was annihilated. <laughs> I mean, gone. So gone. I mean, I don't even know how he could walk. And wow. his girlfriend had passed out in a uh, banquette, you know, one of those round banquettes right off the dance floor. Hold on. I lost your picture. And he walked over to the banquette. He opened up her purse, took out his dick, and pissed in her purse. Oh, no, come on. Oh, that's a terrible David Bowie story. No. Sorry. Sorry. That that's horrible. I'll tell you a horrible Billy Idol story if you want it. Okay, let's have it. Okay, so for those who don't know, China Club had a big room, big open room with the bar in the middle. Then it had two decks on either side with seating that were raised up maybe about three feet off the ground. Not that, not not, that e not even that much. I don't like yeah. maybe three steps or two steps yeah. up. You know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know where the celebrities hung out. You know. And uh, on, on the deck, especially the one on the left as we walked in. Right. 
And I'm standing at the railing and I'm just kind of surveying the room and listening to the music. The right side didn't really have, there was another room on the right side. Well, that was later. That okay. was later. That room was an addition that came years later. Okay. Um, that was a storage room for the hotel at one point. Uh, they actually knocked the wall down and, you know, made it like another VIP. VIP room. Matt Matt is saying Iman. It wasn't Iman. I'm sure it wasn't Iman. Oh, no. Who? Are you talking about with David Bowie? Yeah. No, it's some little no. white girl. Yeah. So, I <laughs> yeah. I mean, she was passed out. It definitely was not Iman, though, I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm kind of just like watching the people, you know, surveilling my kingdom, so to speak, as I looked at it to some extent. And Right there in front of me, literally right in front of me, but on the other side of the deck was Billy Idol. Okay, great. So this young girl comes up to him. Now remember, the music's blaring, so I can't really hear the conversation. Yeah. But she, but she's angry. She's like, ah, 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 you know, I mean, she's really upset. <laughs> and Billy Idol looks at her and goes, "Fuck off!" Bam. Holy shit. And he backhands her right in her face. Holy and I'm like, I'm like home alone. I'm like, oh, you know, like that. About 30 seconds later, another young girl comes running up to him, obviously knowing now that, you know, he backhanded her girlfriend, right? And she's like, ah, 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 ah. and he goes, fuck off. Bam. <laughs> oh my God. I'm talking. Hand to God, I'm not religious, but hand to God, I'm telling you the truth. And I'm shocked. And I remember walking over to Chris Saleo, the GM, and saying, uh, uh, he, he, Billy Idol, he, he just slapped two women in the face. And he goes, I mean, we can't, you know, what are we going to do? We, we didn't see it happen. We don't know. I'm like, oh, my God. I mean, that's a crazy story. Again, nothing to do with me. You know, I, I wasn't part of the whole situation. But that happened. It was His a crazy brother, Eric Eldenius is a friend mm -hmm. of mine in my show, Billy's drummer. He's and yeah, I got to see them in in LA about a year ago, not only about a year ago. Oh, he's a great performer, and That's I love a his horrible music. Horrible story. And maybe he's sober, and maybe he's sober as a judge now, mm. but he sure wasn't then. Wow. And I, I mean, okay. I hung out with Steve Stevens, his guitar player. He was a really nice guy. Steve was a great guy. I would was you, had to, you had to spend time with Bruce Willis because he was always at the club. Oh, I knew I knew Bruce when he worked at Cafe Central. And he was a bartender. I know yeah. when he worked at Kamikaze as a bartender. That's a, now that's a funny China come story. So, you know, Bruce, from time to time, just for fun, liked to jump behind the bar at China Club and actually make a couple of drinks just right. for shits and giggles. Really, you know, he certainly wasn't doing it for tips. Um, and one night I'm there and I'm up on the deck, just mm -hmm. hanging out and Bruce goes behind the bar for 15, 20 minutes. He serves some drinks and then he comes up on the deck. Now, Bruce and I, because we had known each other, we had kind of an unusual way of saying hello to each other. It's not politically correct. Okay. He'd give me a hug yeah. and this is what would go on. He would say, Mace, how's the pussy treating you? And I would always say the same thing. Not as well as it's treating you, Bruce. <laughs> that was my answer. So this time, 
He comes up from behind the bar. He goes on the upper deck. Same thing. Hug. You know, how's he treating you? Not as well as you, Bruce. He's about to sit down. I said, oh, hey, Bruce, can you do me a favor? He goes, yeah. I said, can you go back behind the bar and get me a Diet Coke with no ice? He didn't laugh at that. <laughs> and he looked at me and goes, you're, you're fucking I said, Bruce, you used to serve me Diet Cokes all the time. I said, what, you can't get me one now? <laughs> yeah, so anyway, it's crazy. A lot, I mean, you know, a lot of crazy shit happened in that building. A lot of there was a lot of drugs in there, a lot of really messed up people, but it was amazing. It was an amazing time. I mean, you remember the bathroom inside the office. <laughs> there was this little office in there. It could not have been more than 15 feet by 15 feet. It was not a very big office. No, it was tiny. But inside the office, they had a bathroom. Mm -hmm. And I guess that was called the VIP bathroom, I suppose. <laughs> and I didn't do drugs. So when I went in there, I went there to pee. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mostly so I didn't have to deal with the customers that would go to the, the main bathrooms, you know, outside. Right. Just, you know, not to have to deal with that. So I remember one night I'm in the office. Now you got to understand, and you remember, that bathroom could not have been more than three feet wide and maybe five or six feet long. Right. The toilet all the way in the back and a little tiny sink mm -hmm. up the front, if, if I remember correctly. I one time saw like seven people come out of that bathroom. <laughs> it, was like a, it was like a clown car. They were coming out. One, two, three, four. I'm like, Okay, I don't know how you all fit in there. I mean, you must have been literally sitting on each other to fit inside that bathroom. You know, it was that way at Spodiotis too. If you remember, the VIP room was upstairs, but then yeah. there was the VIP room, which was past it. But then there was yeah. a little teeny tiny room that was like the green room for the celebrity. Like I remember yeah. when, I think it was Greg, Allman was in there and there must have been also like 20 people clown car came coming out of that room and they were like falling over themselves. Hey, guys, you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> yeah. so, I know you're not in there peeing, you know, so. Doug said you did hang out with Iman and David Bowie, by the way. Um, maybe. Maybe but, another but that time. That wasn't the woman that was passed out though. Matt just said you, you just wrote Danny's book. Oh, okay. So Doug said Sam Kinison, Mike Tyson. Stories with them? I know about a Mike Tyson story, but I have nothing to do with it. Okay, tell and us anyway. The Sam Kinison story, again, I hung out with Sam a few times. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he was, he was doing massive amounts of blow at the time. But he also loved... Um, um, not Graham Marnier. He, uh, what, Vicky? You bartended, right? At one point. At one point. What, what's what's the liquid that makes a white Russian? Oh, uh, um, no. You no, do sorry. Graham Marnier I'm, and Kahlua and cream. Am I, I remember now? Bailey's. Bailey's Irish cream. Uh huh. Sam Kinison loved Bailey's. Okay. It's great. It's great with nothing else in it. Okay. 
And when he would go to China Club, they would just put a bottle of Bailey's right on the table. That's it, right? But I remember that one time, and honestly, I had left, but I heard that he really wanted to stay for a long period of time. And Chris Saleo is involved in this story, too. They're trying to figure out how can we get him out of here, but like not embarrassing, not insulting. Right. So at one point, the club's closed. I remember the two glass doors that were at the bottom of the stairs that led into the club. Right. Well, Sam had to go to the bathroom. So he went out to the, use the bathroom. He did not use the VIP bathroom. He used the regular because there was nobody else there. So it right. matter. Right. And then Chris, when he left, locked the door behind him. Right. Sam got so pissed off. I believe he was carrying the 357. And he was about to shoot the glass doors. And luckily, his bodyguard stopped him from doing it. But he literally, that's how, you know, high or, you know, delirious at that point. He was literally going to shoot a 357 into the. <laughs> oh now, the Mike Tyson story that I think Doug is talking about. Yeah. Was there was a, a lovely waitress there named Liz. Cute little brunette. I don't know if you remember Liz. And Mike had been coming into the club and Mike came up with like a little entourage of people. Right. And they were drinking one bottle of champagne after another, you know, popping bottles, popping bottles of champagne. And he wanted another one. And, but he didn't have any more money left. And he basically said to Liz, Liz, I want you to give me your tip money back so I can buy the bottle of champagne. And Liz very politely said, Mike, I've been waiting on you all night long. I've, I haven't been working with any other customers in here. I'm basically your waitress. I've dedicated the whole night to you. You've tipped me very well, and I appreciate that, you know. But I can't give you back my tip money. That's like really, you know. I'm not going to say the real word. But Mike basically said, give me the money, you fucking C-word. And she went to Chris. And she was crying. She was bawling. She was very upset. And Chris surrounded Mike with like eight bouncers. And said, Mike, one of the things we will never accept in this club is abusing our staff. Now you're going to have to go. Wow. And Mike, Mike looked up at him and said, Chris, you can't win. You can't win. And Chris looked at him and said, no, Mike, we can't lose. Because if we get you out of here peacefully and safely, we win. It's good. If you punch any of us, we sue you and we win. So either way, it's a win-win for us. And Mike ended up leaving, quiet, uh, leaving very quietly. Now, he might have come <laughs> back. I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's the story that Doug is thinking of, um, but that's the famous Mike Tyson China Club story, the one wow. that I know. Wow. Yeah, I think I think Doug may have actually spent more time with a lot more time with Mike than I did. I think Doug rode in a limousine with Mike at one point to an event or something. Um, you should have Doug on here is what you should do. <laughs> he, might have, he might have better stories in back then even than I do. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the only one I remember. How about Julian Lennon? Because he, he was always at the China Club. Uh, I don't know if Julian was ever stoned or drunk or not. I really don't know. But he always carried himself with such class. He was such a nice man. 
Mm-hmm. We were, were fellow Aries people. Mm-hmm. So that kind of bonded us a little bit that we were both Aries. He didn't have a clue as to who I was. Not a clue. You know, <laughs> growing, up in, growing up in London. But he figured, well, you're sitting on the upper deck. And you're sitting at the main table on the upper deck. You must be somebody. You know, <laughs> I don't know who you are, but you must be, you know, you must be something important or else you wouldn't be sitting up here, right? Right. That he always carried himself with amazing elegance and class. I mean, I, I don't even remember a foul word coming out of his mouth, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And then I went to go see him once when he played the Beacon Theater, and that was a great show. He he had, you know, he did a big tour off of his first album. Right. Uh, uh, you know, tour support off the album. Mm-hmm. And uh he could not have been a nicer guy. I mean, just just real. Sorry, my, my screen goes black. I don't know why. I, I see that it's true, but I, I'm, we're still seeing you. We're good. Yeah, so basically in a nutshell, I'm just clicking to reboot the so I can see you. Um, yeah, I mean, really just one of those guys that everyone loved, you know? I don't even remember him using the private bathroom ever. You know, he just there was no scandal with him. Just a really sweet guy, you know, hanging out. I got to tell you, though, one night I walked into the office and Mark Wahlberg, uh, uh, Tanya Tucker, Chaka Khan, Brett Favre, and um, um, Denzel Washington were all in the office. That's a weird combination of people. It is, but I mean, (laughs) that's a lot of star power, you know, in one office. And the funny story of that was Tanya Tucker took a liking to me. She thought I was adorable, you know. She was wearing a sweater, and she lifted her sweater and put it over my head and, you know, did one of these and jiggled her boobs in my face. Hysterical. That's something I'll never forget. Um, But, you know, she was drinking pretty heavy back then, uh, and she talks a lot about that. Um, But that's a hell of a crew. That's a very diverse crew. That's a but on any given on any given night, inside that club, I mean, Stallone could be at one table. You know, half of the half of the New York Giants football team could be in the club. Eddie Murphy could have a table over here. I mean, it was really, God, it was an amazing thing. It just was amazing. And for those that were there, mm-hmm. it's like permanently burned into your brain, like it's indelible. It's a memory that we'll never really forget because, and Chris and I have talked about this, Chris Aleo. The beauty of it was there were no paparazzi. Mm. There were no people walking around with cell phone cameras. Right. Pictures of people. Right. So these huge A-list stars could come into the club and feel like themselves. You know, that's probably why it was that way, Mason, because if it was yes. today, they, yeah. could, they would be so bothered yes. by everyone. Yes. You're absolutely right. I mean, I mean, there were a lot of people who wanted to get up onto that upper deck. Right. You know, they always had a security post, you know, guy standing at the post, you know, making sure you couldn't get up, you know. Right. But the one thing about China Club that was cool, and I think you're right, because I don't even think it was three feet off the ground. I don't think so was the, the the clientele, the regular clientele, could get very close to the celebrities. Mm-hmm. Like literally within feet of them, 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and wave at them and say hi to them. And sometimes they'd say hi back, you know, whatever. Um, I think that was another unique part of the club mm-hmm. was the fact that the, you know, the, the ordinary citizens, so to speak, could, could almost rub elbows, almost. It was that close mm-hmm. with, you know, mega stars. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen anymore either, you know. Um, and there was no bottle service back then. And it wasn't, it didn't have, it didn't have the pretentiousness that it does, you know, today. And, and then, I mean, I haven't been inside of a nightclub in, I don't even know how many years. I won't even set foot in them. I hate them. You know, I, I, I actually kind of despise them. And it's not because I don't drink. It's just because I don't like what it is. But don't, you, you, you didn't continue going to clubs to hear live music? Yeah, live music I liked. Yeah. And I loved it. and I loved the Beacon Theater. Again, I lived a block away. Right. And I knew and I knew like half the security force of the Beacon Theater. Mm-hmm. So I could go see a show anytime I wanted. I literally could just walk in off the street nice. and, and get like a house seat. Mm-hmm. I saw Duran Duran and Tower of Power and Earth Wind and Fire. I mean, I saw some great concerts at the Beacon. Mm-hmm. But you know, the the the, the dance clubs, nightclubs. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think after 95, I don't think I liked them at all. I started going more to lounges, more intimate lounges, where the volume was a little bit lower. The level of intoxication was not quite as, as large. It was a little bit more sophisticated. A little, I mean, I loved a place called the Merck Bar, which was on Mercer Street. That was one of my favorite places ever. But you know, in 1995, I opened up my own club. Okay, see, I became a, I was a mom in 1994, so I missed all of that. Yeah. Okay, so tell us about that. I opened up a nightclub called the Now Bar, N-O-W-B-A-R. It was in a very famous location. There had been a club there called the Milk Bar. Oh, yeah, of course. In the 80s, right on the corner of Leroy Street and 7th Avenue South in the West Village. Mm-hmm. And I, I had known the owner of the building, a guy named Jack Lesko, uh, who I believe is still alive today, actually. Uh, God, it's got to be in his 80s now, I would imagine. Um, but I believe he's still alive. Okay. Uh, I, I've been told by pretty reliable sources that he, he is still alive. I mean, I have not been in contact with him. But Jack ended up being my landlord there for about five years until he sold the building. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was there for 10 years. I mean, I had a 10-year run from 95 to 05 nice. in that particular space. And we did all kinds of crazy parties. I mean, we did... But didn't you have food? I seem to recall talking to you about food. No food? No, I owned a restaurant. Okay. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. Oh, I owned a Latin restaurant for 11 years called Paladar, which was kind of like a a Latin fusion. We did a little bit of different cultures, kind of like an amalgamation of different, you know, Latin countries and and their foods. Um, My partner was actually a very famous chef on television named Aron Sanchez, who's written many cookbooks. He's constantly on Food Network right now. He's wow. like a judge unshopped. He's like a big, you know, he's a big macher, as they say in, uh, in our language. Um, and he was my partner for almost 11 years at, at Paladar. Uh, I had a little place on the Upper West Side called Mason's for a little while. And then Chris Saleo and I ended up partnering up years later for a bar called Destination on Avenue A and 13th Street. And we had that for six years, and then we just we sold it after that. But um, but we had destination for a number of years, and that was the last place. And that I retired officially from that world in 2015. Because 
I did 20 years. I served 20 years. That's how I look at it. Like I literally was behind bars, for, behind bars. That's actually a very funny play on words. Um, <laughs> I, I felt like I was in, you know, in a jail cell for 20 years. How about that? You um, work hard. I, it is hard work, right? It's crazy. Hard. It's so hard. And the hours are, it got to a point though, for the last six years, well, the last four, I really was out of there by midnight. That was it. And, but Chris and I were the managing partners for many years of the bar called Destination. Mm -hmm. And we had a great system worked out. I would come in early. I would do the inventory. I would make sure the bar was all stocked up and ready to go, count the money, do what we had to do. I would do happy hour because we opened at three. Mm -hmm. And I would stay there until about 10 o'clock. But Chris would come in about nine o'clock and we'd bullshit for a while and just like hang out and talk to customers. And then we'd high five and Buddy and I would leave and go off on our own. And Chris would hang out till, you know, 12, 1, 2, you know, because um, Chris Chris is not a big drinker, but he does have a social drink or two, you know, with a, with a customer. You know, he'll do that. But that was something I never did. So at a certain point for me, it just became exhausting, really exhausting. And being around drunk people every day, for hours and hours at a time, just increasingly became more and more difficult for me. Um, Doug says, tell Vicky about uh, Polly Herman. I, I remember Polly and how the China Club came to be from. Oh, yeah. Well, Polly Herman was an actor, mm -hmm. but he was also kind of a bar fly. Mm -hmm. Okay. He hung out at a place called Cafe Central the original Cafe Central, for those who don't know, was on Amsterdam Avenue and 75th. Right around the corner. Isn't that where Bruce worked? Bruce Willis? Bruce, it? Worked, at, Bruce worked at Cafe Central. Mm -hmm. And John Goodman was the doorman. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Back in his, in his young days. Right. And it was filled with a lot of actors. A lot of actors from all different walks of life. Theater. Uh, back in the day, there were a lot of soap operas being done in New York. So right. a lot of these young soap opera actors hung out there. And Peter Herrero, who is one of my closest, dearest friends, and his wife, Kim, mm -hmm. who's one of my closest, dearest friends. Um, Peter was a very loving, friendly owner who loved to talk to people and get to know people. Mm -hmm. And Paulie kind of developed a really big black book of names. To, to use an old term, he had a big Rolodex of names. <laughs> Yeah. That's that's a that's a word that we haven't heard in about thirty years, right? This big thing that would sit on your desk and you'd have cards in it looking through it, right? Um, prehistoric. Oh my god. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> so David Boyd, who was also one of the bartenders and bar managers, was at Cafe Central as well. Mm -hmm. So when David teamed up with uh, uh, Danny Freed and Michael Barrett to ultimately be the third partner in the triumvirate that uh, that owned China Club. Um, Polly Herman came along for the ride, and Polly knew a lot of celebrities, a lot, and he brought De Niro in there, and he brought Stallone in there, and he brought. I think he might have even brought Duran Duran in there in the early days mm -hmm. before they were known as being a really big music club, right? right. So Paulie Herman was incredibly instrumental 
from making China Club what it was. Wow. However, however, and you know this, the real person who launched China Club was a promoter named Fat Frankie Spinlaro, mm-hmm. who for many years was in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And then he some he might have gotten into the modeling industry at some point as well. But talk about a Rolodex. That man knew everyone. So he launched a Monday night party Model at a club. Night. Models night with, with Fat Frankie mm-hmm. at Heartbreak, mm-hmm. which, by the way, in my love and in my heart, will be the top three clubs in the history of New York City. I loved Heartbreak. For those of you that don't know, that were never there, it was basically a truck stop diner, cafeteria type of place for truckers to get food during the day. But at night, it transformed into this insanely incredible rock and roll dance club, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Elvis and the Stones and the Beatles and Motown. There was, you know, a disco. There was disco. They played that too. And on any given Monday, any star in the world, you name it, they were there. Cher hung out there. I mean, they well, everybody. That's where Cher met Rob. That's that. Well, Cher, Cher actually, I'll give, I won't give myself credit for this, but the night that Cher saw Rob mm-hmm. for the first time, mm-hmm. my band was playing that night at Heartbreak. <laughs> it, was a, it was a Sunday night. <laughs> that was their, like, their live music night was Sunday nights. Wow. And I, my band was playing there, a slightly wow. different formation. Richie Kanata was on sax, John Tory was on sax, but Benny was also playing too. Um, so we were playing the night that Cher saw Rob for the first time. I'm not going to give myself any credit for that. A lot of people do, but I won't. But I happen to be there. I happen to be in the crowd. Let's just say that. Um, but Heartbreak, my God, that was just another amazing, amazing club. No pretension, no bullshit, no cameras. And it was earlier than China Club. It was right. like 82, 83. Mm-hmm. Okay. As a matter of fact, I remember having my 18th birthday there in 83, <laughs> which meant I was going there before I was 18. Well, of course. And of course. And of course, that wasn't legal, but Lenny, the owner of Heartbreak, sure as hell wasn't going to say no. I mean, he loved me. Well, how great that that we grew up in New York where the legal drinking age was 18 so you never got carded ever well Vicky do you remember when it was at one very short point it was it was 17 at one point I believe and then for a very short period of time it became 19. I remember that I remember that also yeah it wasn't 17 then it was 18 and then for a brief moment it was 19 yeah and then all of a sudden it jumped up to 21. right but when I was going to another, oh God, another amazing club called the Limelight, okay, <laughs> I was I was only 17 and a half years old when I was going to the Limelight. Now Doug hey, made China Club said that's where he met you. Yes, we met up in the library, up in the VIP room of, of Limelight. Um I I I I do I do kind of have a an interesting story about that one. Um okay. I asked I actually lost my virginity to the female bathroom attendant at Limelight. <laughs> yes, yes. bathroom attendant, that's well, very sexy. <laughs> yes, I thought so, she was older, she was 27. All right. She was an older woman, right? She thought I was 21, 
but I was really only 17 and a half. So I was in there one night and as people did, and I'm sure you right. remember, yes. there were no, there was no genders in the bathrooms. People just flowed anywhere they wanted to flow. You know what I mean? There might have been an M and a W on the door, but nobody <laughs> paid attention to that. And I and I remember I used to go to the ladies' bathroom all the time, right? And I got to know this girl DJ, who was the female bathroom attendant. And she said, you know, are you going to be here all night? I said, yeah, I'm going to be up in the library all night long. So when she got off her shift at like 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock, she came up and we hung out. And later that weekend, I actually ended up going out to Staten Island and staying with her for three days. Wow. So there you go. Uh, and the rest okay. of the So, all right. So Doug said to t you should tell me about how you guys knew Eddie Murphy back in the day. And then I'll tell you something funny about, about Eddie. But Oh, okay. So years and years and years ago, Okay. My mom and I had an idea for a TV show. I think it was called Mason and Company. I think that's what we tentatively called it. And it was going to be very much like the Carol Burnett show, where I'm the star, but, uh -huh. I, have a, but I have like a repertory group. Right. Really funny people that I would do sketches with. Okay. Uh -huh. We have a guest star come in, you know, do a little Q&A with them and then, you know, have sketches. And my mom and I went around to all the comedy clubs, and Eddie was one of the people that we discovered. Okay, he so was a was he was this, not anything. Was this back when he was on Long Island at the, at um, Eastside Comedy Club? He was living with his parents in Long Island, correct. And we brought him in to do Mason and Company. And I remember my mom at that time saying to him, "She goes, Eddie, you're going to be a star." you're going to be a very big star one day. And he was a young kid. He didn't know. And like nine or 10 months later, he got SNL. But Eddie, sl Eddie slept on my floor in my apartment. Okay, so I was in the laughter company that Eddie started in a few okay. years later. Yeah, that, yeah. Okay. He was in well, with Rosie O'Donnell and Bob Nelson. And, yeah. Bob Nelson was one of the people too. You know who else we, you know who else we discovered? Nathan Lane. Oh, come on. How? Where at? At a comedy club. He was doing stand-up. Wow. Absolutely. Also, um, um, because you're the comedy person, you know, the, the, the woman that Elaine was based on. Oh, Carol Leifer. Carol Leifer. Of course. She was, also, she was also one of our people. You know who else? The, the, it was a black comedian. Who end up who ended up becoming a very famous director, but he's dead now. He passed away, young. He was oh younger. God, I know I know exactly who you're talking about, and I okay, I know. Exactly yeah, you know, you know. It'll, it'll come. He started off as a comedian. He died very young. Oh, it's oh, very very young. young. Yes. Oh God, this is going to kill me now. Yeah, I know. I can't. Maybe Doug will remember. You know, maybe he's got a better Doug, memory than both. Doug, tell us. Yeah, Doug's doing great. Doug's but Doug was there throughout all of this. Like he remembers all of it. And but Eddie literally slept on my floor because right. it got so late one night. We were rehearsing it in my living room, the lines and stuff. It got so late one night that the trains weren't running anymore. So he's literally we put like a blanket down on the floor and a pillow, and he slept in my bedroom. Wow. And I gotta tell you something. No human being has ever made me laugh harder in my life. 
And I mean, I haven't seen any maybe now in about five, six years, maybe a little bit more. That's not that long, yeah. But any time I would see Eddie, he would give me a hug and a kiss, and the first words out of his mouth were, how's your mom? Aww. Always. Because he remembered that my mom said what she said, that you wow. are going to be a huge star. She was right. That's but great. can you imagine, I mean, my mother and I, who are not comedians, we're not comedic experts by any stretch of the imagination. What a lineup we picked. Okay, so were you around when like, when Rodney was doing his young comedian specials and stuff? And I Bob saw was on one of those with Sam. Yeah, yeah. I actually met Rodney at the Paris Health Club, <laughs> which was up on 99th and West End. And I met him naked. <laughs> he was naked and I was naked. We were in the locker room together. <laughs> and by the way, Miles Davis was there too. Oh my God. Doug says he's trying to remember the name of the drug. Oh, oh God, I just had it. Oh God, this is make this is gonna make me crazy. That I'm not, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna remember it. I mean I could look it up on my phone, but I don't even know Singleton. what to look up. Is it Singleton? No. Yes. yes. No. 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 No, no, Singleton just died, didn't he? Okay, not single. Okay, but wait, but wait, uh, it'll come to me. Anyway, it'll it'll come to me. It'll make me crazy. Yeah. It's not, so, it's, not right. John, it's not John Singleton. No. no. So I remember who it is. But I remember he made his first movie by literally credit cards. Like maxing out all of his credit cards. That was the big gimmick to the very first movie he ever made. Wow. That that's what I, that's what I remember. Wow. But I can't, I can't I can't remember his damn name though. But I mean for people who were not comedians like me and my mom, mm -hmm. All of the cast that we assembled. No shit. Okay, so now you you had a show. It was this the show Mason? This was yeah. a, this was that show Mason? No. Hold no. on. Hold on. One second. The audio. Doug says uh, you were in Brett Ratner's first film. What was that? You don't know about that? No. How do you not know about that? I don't know about that. Okay. For a long time, it was not one of my favorite stories. But now I can look back at it and laugh about it. So Brett Ratner, very famous Hollywood director, he was looking to do an NYU graduate film, you know, as, as like a thesis, basically, like a graduating project. Right. And originally, he wanted to get Anthony Michael Hall to be part of his movie. Okay. Doug is also really good friends with Mike as well, by the way. So Mike didn't want to do it for some crazy reason. I don't, I don't even know why to this day, but he just didn't was want he, to do was it. Was he already a, a thing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he'd already done the vacation movies. And, oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if he'd done Pretty in Pink at that point or 16 Candles or whatever it was. Um, but he was he was pretty well known at that point. And I think we're talking about 1990. Robert Townsend. Thank you very much. Elizabeth Melcher just came up with that. Thank, Thank you, Elizabeth. Elizabeth. That, that is correct. Robert Townsend. Mm -hmm. Lovely guy. Oh, my God. They're all nice guys. I mean, I mean, just 
Bob Nelson was hysterical, and Eddie was great, and Nathan Lane was crazy as a loon, but he was great. I mean, they were all just great guys, great people. And and uh, uh, very likely that Bob will watch this. Bob, I, I was in the laughter company for about eight months, but Bob comes on my Facebook once in a while, so yeah. I'll I'll I'll. Tell and you. by the way, this was the time when he was juggling the handkerchiefs. Oh fuck yeah, Jiffy Jeff. Uh, yeah. That that and, and the football player with the helmet and the balloons. Okay, yeah. that was the time when he was developing those routines. Right. So we're talking a long time ago. Um, my so anyway. Bob was in like eighty. 384. What was this? Right around that time, right? Yeah, it had yeah. to have been. It had to have been. Like I said, it was about nine months before Eddie got onto SNL. So maybe he got onto SNL in 84, maybe. This is 83. Okay. I really don't remember. Um, so Brett Ratner needed someone to do his film. Right. And for some reason or another, and I still to this day don't know why, Michael said, Mike said, well, how about Mason Reese? Were you okay. friends? No. No, but Mike through, and I. Were you, were you friends I, through Doug, maybe? No, no, Doug didn't meet, my, didn't meet oh. Mike until the Chinacle days. Okay. But Michael, Michael knew about me because Michael grew up on the Upper West Side. And Michael literally saw me in Riverside Park growing up as a kid okay. and he later told me years ago that i was one of the reasons he got into acting was because he had watched me on tv Aww. and things like because i'm 55 and mike i think is about 50 or 51. Uh -huh. so you know i was i was an influence to him michael j fox by the way said the same, same thing so that when he was growing that when, when he was growing up in toronto mm -hmm. as a young kid he actually did see me on toronto television and I'm one of the reasons why he said he got into show business. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah, that one almost made me cry when I met him. I was like so touched by that. You know, I met him in China Club too. Um, unfortunately, we didn't stay in touch, but he, he was, he's, he's a good guy. I, I really like him. Okay, I, so Tracy Pollan is yeah. my, was my, fa my father was married to her aunt. Oh, okay. Yeah. She's really good too. So we were little kids. Oh, wow, they what a what a, what a great loving life they have. I mean, they've been together for a hundred years, and you know they got the kids, and they're they're not into like the big Hollywood stardom mentality. And it, I like Mike a lot. I have I have the ultimate respect for that man, and and what he's been through too, and what he continues to do to help people to get back, mm -hmm. you know, to people out there. Anyway, so Ratner calls me up. I don't know who this kid is. I mean, he's a college kid. Right. So he says, I want to do a movie called Whatever Happened to Mason Reese. And I want to make it like very almost like you're this really suave guy, like you wear a smoking jacket, and you've got all these hot six-foot models hanging out with you. And you're like this lady killer guy, and you drive around with a limo that has a jacuzzi in the back of it. And then you go to a Japanese restaurant and the sous chef, who actually was Michael Anderson, the little guy from Twin Peaks. I didn't the, little dwarf, the little dwarf in Twin Peaks. Okay, I didn't watch I mean, it. He was a major part of, the, of that show. Okay. Anyway, great little, great actor, little tiny guy, like three and a half feet tall. And he's obsessed with you. He's your biggest fan. And you're going to treat him like a piece of shit. And then at the end, 
he's going to kill you with a Japanese samurai sword. <laughs> okay, Brett, whatever you say, right? So I did it. Now, here's the, here's the wonky part. Okay. I signed a document saying that this was going to be an NYU graduate film. I'm working for free. It is not intended for professional use. It is literally just a thesis graduation project. Right. Unfortunately, I never got a copy of that document, but I did sign it. And I know what I signed. It was this one little paragraph. So we do it. Unfortunately, on the second day of shooting, I break my leg. We're, in the, we're shooting in the back of a limo, and I'm in the back seat, and the girls are like tumbling and rumbling and kissing me and grabbing me and the whole thing. And at one point, one of the models falls yeah. off her chair and lands right on my shin bone. I cracked my shin. How much could a model weigh? Say what? How much could a model weigh? I don't know. Enough. The way she Enough. Oh. It broke my leg. Oh so I, couldn't complete the, I could not complete the rest of the project. So they had to do editing and music and shooting around me and, you know, whatever they did, it worked. It was fine. It ended up coming out to me about nine or ten minutes in length, and it had some really cool, like, music, and I had the theme from Shaft, and it looked good. It sounded pretty good. But then Brett decides that for some reason he's going to overdub my voice with Anthony Michael Hall's voice on helium. <laughs> so Michael ends up sounding like this. His voice is very high. He sounds like this. Right? <laughs> I don't know what the director's choice on that was, but that's what he decided to do. That's hysterical. Now, let me just make it clear. Brett yeah. never came to see me in the hospital. Didn't really care very much about my well-being. And he proceeded to, in many different areas, talk very badly about me. And what and, Well, he's going to sue me. He's going to sue NYU. And I, it was his acting was so bad that I had to overdub his voice, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So Brett and I, for years, had a longstanding feud. Then one day, many years later, Brett became a famous director. And he directed a movie called Rush Hour. Okay. I remember. When Rush Hour was put out on VHS mm -hmm. and then later on DVD, mm -hmm. Brett put my movie into the Rush Hour video and the DVD as extra bonus footage. Never paid me a dime. Not a dime. And those movies and DVDs sold a lot. I mean, millions of copies back then of the DVD, the VHS, and good old Mason Reese never received a penny from it. Then many years later, I saw him on Broadway at 83rd Street in New York City, even though he lived in Hollywood, but he was in New York. Mm -hmm. And I said, Brett, you know damn well I never signed a release for you to use that in any professional capacity. You know that. And he looked at me and goes, oh, you absolutely did. I said, well, you're going to have to prove that to me. He said, well, when I go back to L.A., I'll, I'll fax it to you. Uh -huh. He never did. He never did.
So I proceeded to say some pretty mean-spirited things about him, knowing that he had already done it before me. Well, now fast forward many, many years, and we could talk about this if you want, but I put together a little production company. I shot a pilot for a TV show called Life Interrupted. Okay, that's the last thing I was going to talk to you about, so go right. into so that. that mm -hmm. So we, we needed what's called a color correction company to huh? make all the scenes look exactly the same color-wise and things like that. Well, Brett, not only did he give us his color correction team, which would have cost us probably seven to $10,000. And we were on a very tight budget to produce this thing. But he actually donated $500 towards the production itself. Me, my business partner, Stephen Wishmoff, Allison Arngrim, who plays my ex-wife in the show. For those of you who don't know the name right off the top of your head, she was Nasty Nellie Olson in uh, Little House on the Prairie. Okay? Allison did this show. Oh, oh, she did. Okay, fantastic. She is a hoot, mm -hmm. that woman. I mean, I think I can talk. <laughs> she can talk circles around me. You know, on, on my best day, I could never talk as much as she does. So we had, oh, and Aaron Murphy, who plays, it's a little complicated, follow me. Aaron Murphy, after Allison's character divorces me, she ends up becoming a lesbian. And she and Aaron Murphy are now married okay. in the show. They're now wife and wife. So we all went to... And Dawn uh, Wells is in this show, isn't she? Who? Dawn Wells. Dawn Wells, who is Marianne on Gilligan's Island, is in the show. Michael Leonard, who is the mother in the Waltons, is on the show. Uh, Robbie Rist, who played Cousin Oliver on The Brady Bunch, is on the show. Brandon Cruz, who was Courtship of Eddie's father, is on the show. So we had a lot, a lot of really cool people involved in this project. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it kind of just fell apart. and We never were able to sell it. So it is what it is. But that's very typical, unfortunately. Yes. Uh, but I'm very proud of the final product, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. um, but we all went to Brett's house for lunch one day in Beverly Hills. And let me tell you something. He has publicly now declared that everything that he owes in his career, he owes to me. What? It's in his memoirs. He has a book called The Hill Haven Lodge. Every, in, in the LA Times, he's declared it. I even have a copy of his book. He signed it. He goes, I would be nothing if it weren't for your movie. Because what happened was, after he made that movie, he took that to Steven Spielberg. And Steven Spielberg ended up giving him a, a grant, a financial grant, based on that movie and that project. Wow. He then ended up taking that to Russell Simmons, the big hip-hop mogul. Right. right. Russell ended up letting him direct videos and commercials and MTV videos for him. And that ultimately took him to Hollywood wow. and made him what he is today. A guy that makes like seven to 10 million a picture as a director, you know? Wow. And um, yeah, so he openly admits now that he owes everything in his career to me. Now, the wow. funny story is, the funny story is I'm laying in bed. This is like 
I don't know, about three, three years ago, maybe something like that. And I'm laying in bed and I have Brett's cell phone number. But for some reason, it came up private on my phone, even though I have his number. And I answer the phone. And he's like, nice. I said, yeah. He goes, Brett. I said, oh, Brett, how you doing? He goes, I have somebody in my living room that wants to say hi to you. And he starts talking. And I don't really, like, I'm not sure. He goes, dude, I slept on your fucking floor. It was Eddie Murphy. Wow. And they were talking about me. And they were about to make a movie together. But that all just kind of fell apart. Who knows why? Yeah. But. And like Eddie basically comes out and says, dude, we should get Mason a part in this movie that we're doing. And Brett's like, you know what? You're absolutely right. We should. But the movie never came to pass. Wow. So it happens. I interviewed Peter Bogdanovich in, Brett, in Brett's guest house. Yes. Peter was renting Brett, Brett's place, his compound. How many years ago was this? Four. Maybe. The reason I ask is because um, Brett's grandmother lived there for most of the time that he lived there. She lived in the guest house, which, by the way, I would have been happy living in. You know, actually, it wasn't the guest. It was a party house. It was a do you know which what it, it was? I interviewed Peter in a, Peter lived in the, was renting the main house. And then there was this house. Maybe it was the guest house. But all yeah. It was like a wild, it had like wild things on the walls and it, yeah, had it, like wasn't great disco, it had like a disco ball. It was like wild. Are you talking about the house that was right off the pool? Might've been right off the pool. It was literally like steps away from the pool. Yeah, that makes it probably, sense. It probably originally was a pool house converted into an apartment basically. That's what it looked um, like. Yeah. And his grandmother lived there for, <laughs> I don't know if she's still alive, but I mean, at one point in time, I was thinking about moving out to L.A. And Brett actually said to me, dude, if you don't have a place, you can stay with me. You can stay here. I mean, God knows he's got the room, you know. And uh, I wouldn't mind staying in that zip code either. But uh, Okay, so now how, Mason, how, if he was trash talking you, you were trash talking him. How did you guys mend that? I think just enough years had gone by. Um, and I had heard that he had said something nice about, you know, owing the career to him. And I took a chance in reaching out to him about the color correction team, you know, and asking him for that favor. And I'm just lucky that I got the response that I did. You know, and then I ended up going to one of his birthday parties later. And I mean, I haven't seen him in a couple of years now. But, but that uh, isn't that long ago that you did Life Interrupted. What year was that? That wasn't that long ago. We did Life Interrupted five years ago, just just under five years, I believe. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, remember I, I was supposed right. to come you up. You were staying in Hollywood. Yeah. And I was supposed to come pick you up, and we were supposed to have lunch, and something happened, and we didn't end up doing it. But for whatever, whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, Brett's a pretty busy dude. Um, you know, he's doing a lot of traveling all over the world and, you know, doing what he does. Um, and you. I was supposed to oh, see me. you for lunch. Yes. You were staying in Hollywood when you came out. You were doing stuff for Life Interrupted, and we were supposed to go have lunch. And oh. Something happened. Yeah, at that time, I was staying at an Airbnb on Franklin. That's what um, Yeah, Franklin right, out, right off of Highland. 
Uh, I was staying at a really nice Airbnb there. I wonder what happened that we didn't get together. I can't remember. I don't remember. I mean, maybe I was in the process of rehearsal or learning my lines or something. I, I don't. I really don't know. Um, we shot that in four days. Wow. Uh, the pilot, so we did it pretty quick. I mean, we didn't have time to waste. You know. I mean, we're working on a really tight budget, so. Um, I mean, we couldn't do more than three takes of anything. I mean, we had to get it nailed. Who directed, we just Who directed it? Stephen Wishnoff directed it. Mm -hmm. uh, did a great job. He wrote it. He executive produced it along with me and my production company. He helped to cast it, you know, just out of, out of the net of people that we all knew, you know. Right. Um, and he directed it. Yeah. I mean, he did a, a yeoman's job doing it. So I just look, we've been talking for two hours and 10 minutes. Wow. You're right. <laughs> so before, so before we go, I was like, I, and people are hanging with us. They've been with us this whole time. Wonderful. Do, do we, do we have any questions that we can answer or anything? So, or? All right. So I've been kind of looking at the thread as we've been, I've been kind of pulling okay. things out. Doug's already gotten enough airtime. The hell with him. Um, before, well, I, I I don't want to like read through the whole thread because well, it'll take us me a half hour to do it. It's a lot a lot of comments. But I'll do know, that I'm, later. I'll do that later. Know, I'm, what I'm going to ask you to do is if you go through the thread later and just yeah. answer people. Uh, sure. Okay. Yeah. That'd be great. So all right. So but what I want to ask you is, you've done all this stuff. You've lived this life. You know all these yeah. people. Is there yeah. something? Is there something you haven't done? Is there something you still want to do? Are you done? Well, what, what? No. Well, for a while, I thought I thought in my heart that I was um, not not selling life interrupted. I'm not going to lie. It was like a horse mule kick to the gut. Um, there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears, uh, a little bit of money also put in by me. Um, Is and I really after Buddy Rich. Sorry, Tony. I just caught that. one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. his, okay. his name is Buddy Rich Reese. That's his full name. Uh, that's what it says on his dog pack, Buddy Rich Reese. Um, I was actually going to name him Bonham, Bonham, but I didn't think anybody would understand it. You know, how do you spell that? What, Bonham? What, what does that mean? You know, so I just went with Buddy. Yeah. Easy. Um, <laughs> yes, he was named after Buddy Rich. Very good. Whoever said that. Tony good point. You know Tony. Um, so I really. I mean, I, I was basically retiring from the bar business, you know, at that point too, 2015, right around there. Um, you know, Stephen had created this wonderful concept for a show. I was incredibly excited about it. I loved working with the people that I did. It was an honor and privilege to work with them. I didn't get to work with Michael Learned one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. but I did a wonderful scene with Don Wells in the bar and I did a, a really great scene where I'm hungover and like hair is all disheveled with Allison. And that was fantastic. Just sidebar, Michael Learned was scheduled to be here when we went into lockdown. Oh. He was my next guest. She's on my banner when we went into lockdown. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, oh, I just want to tell you a very quick story about Michael. Mm -hmm. If she ever does the show, maybe She's, you can put it on. this show. Yeah. So... All Michael had to do in the premiere of Life Interrupted, in the pilot, was this one little two-minute scene. She plays Aaron Murphy's mother, okay? All she had to do was walk into the bar. She has a brief interaction with Allison, 
couple of quick little funny lines, a throwaway line, and then she walks off frame. Two minutes tops. Right. We had a makeup room set up where the band, we actually shot at the Mint in LA. I know. We rented the the Mint for two days. And we, let me tell you something, we did an amazing job on that place. Set decorating, lighting. It ends up looking much bigger than it really is. And it looks more like a neighborhood pub than it does like a live music, you know, type of place. Right. So Michael had a fairly early call, you know, to show up, maybe nine o'clock, you know, not as not as early as us. Mm-hmm. I was there by 6.45 because I was also executive producing. Even though I wasn't in the scene, I was there. Right. So Michael's sitting there. She came in her own clothing, which was very appropriate for, we wanted her to be like an Upper East Side snooty, waspy bitch, basically, you know, who hated Allison's character, hates her, and has never met me before, but has not heard anything good about me, honestly. And Michael sat in the dressing room, makeup room, for hours upon hours upon hours. She probably did not get onto set till about four o'clock in the afternoon. Wow. And that woman did not say a word. Wow. She never called Stephen into the room. What am I going to, you know, work? What am I going to do my job? You're not paying me diddly shit. You know, everyone got paid a hundred dollars a day for their work because we were shooting at what they call SAG new media. So, on the promise if we sold it, they would get paid. Right. But just for their work alone, $100 a day. Cash money, whatever. What does that do? Buy five gallons of gas? You know, basically. Uh, and, a, and a taco. That's basically <laughs> what it buys you. So I was astounded by her professionalism and her amazing, strong strong desire to be the best she possibly could be and she didn't have to be three takes she nailed it one which we we kind of figured she would you know i mean she's a four emmy awards she's like a she is a consummate 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 professional Mm -hmm. and to be honest with you i was a little intimidated by her because i knew about her background and what she'd accomplished you know and her her television royalty, if you want to call it that, you know. But I felt that way about Allison, too. I mean, you're talking about royalty in in the television sitcom world, you know. Well, Don Wells as well. Come on, Marianne. And let me tell you something. Way before I ever met Don Wells, I was always always a Marianne guy. Always. Ginger was evening at, at her house at a little dinner party. Uh, she's a, she's the best. She's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful lady. She actually wanted me to come over to the house and play poker. <laughs> but I, you know, nickel and dime. It was really you know really low stakes, and I wanted to like how cool would that be to play poker with Don Wells? You know, yeah. but it never it never ended up happening. So unfortunately, but uh, but if you ever if you ever do interview Michael, please. If you remember, just give her my love. Of course, I'll remember. I absolutely will. I mean, she's, and we're friends on Facebook now, and I comment on some of her posts. 
And uh, I didn't even you know, know she was on Facebook. Oh wow, I she go. is. She absolutely is. And every time I send her hearts, and she sends me hearts and kisses back, and I just had this beautiful photo with me on the set with her. Um, you know, and Don too. I have a great photo with me and Don, which I, I have a great photo with Don also. Which just, when I whenever I post the picture with Don, it gets more likes than anything I ever post with anyone. Really? Everyone loved Marianne. Everybody was in love with her. How yeah. could you not be? So she's so amazing. Anyway, yeah. She's 78 or 79 she now, I believe. Fantastic. She looks yeah. amazing. She actually might be 80 now. She might have just turned 80. Um, but to answer the initial question, which I actually do remember, okay. uh, before we you know, take our little detour, um, when life interrupted did not sell, it hurt really bad. You know, I instead of being a professional about it and realizing that one out of a thousand pilots gets picked up, I took it hard. I really did. It was an emotional blow, not to my ego, but just to my soul, really, because I had put so much effort and heart into it. And I look back at the pilot and I'm very critical of my own particular performance. There are moments I think I could have done better, but I literally had to scrape off 30 years of rust. Like I had not spoken written dialogue since maybe 1984, I think. That was like the last project I really did. Um, so that's a, that's a lot, that's a lot. But I'm still very proud of ultimately what we did. We, we entered uh, Life Interrupted into independent film festivals all over the country. We won 19 laurels, wow. including including Best Web Show. I won two for Best Actor. Nice. Which is incredible. Allison won two. We won for Best Theme Song, which was co-written by Stephen and Robbie Rist. I'm sure you know Robbie's an amazing musician. I'm sure you I know that. I know this indeed. He's an incredibly talented. I actually want to get Robbie on the show. I think I even, I almost had him scheduled once. I have to get back in touch with him. I warn you, he doesn't return calls very well. <laughs> you heard me. And we're working on a project together right now. We're developing a one-hour drama that originally I came up with like the outline of. John Rose brought... 82. Holy 82. Shit. Wow. Okay, so she was that means that she was 77. That's right, true. when we did the show. Well, that actually makes sense now that I think about it. I thought maybe she'd been 74 or 75, but anyway, yeah, no, she looks amazing. She's such an incredibly spirited woman. It's beautiful. Um, Robbie and I are working on a project now, a really dark, kind of a brooding one-hour drama. Um, I had originally come up with like the framework of the show. I brought it to him. He filled it out and kind of broadened it even to areas that I had not really gone, uh, honestly. Uh -huh. Then we brought in a, a writer and, and directed him, Andy Lerner, out there, who kind of brought in even more. Then we brought in this really wonderful young female writer to write the pilot script because it's a female-based show. The, the, the hero, heroine, woman, uh, a Latin woman. The one who wrote it is not Latin, but she's a young girl, about the same age as the, the character. Uh -huh. And um, right now we're just kind of figuring out what the strategy is going to be for 2021, what we're going to do with it. You know, do we do we uh, do a sizzle reel for it? Do we shoot the pilot? I have no idea. So 
at some point in time, Robbie and I have to figure out what exactly we're going to do with the project. But he doesn't even return my texts. <laughs> All right. I guess I'm not going to chase him then. <laughs> but I'll tell you something. He's a great interview if you do it. He's great. He's a lot of fun. He's a lot of fun. He's got an encyclopedic. Is that the right word? Encyclopedic? Yeah. yeah. His brain remembers everything. Wow. And, you know, he was called the show killer. Because supposedly he killed the Brady Bunch. You know. But, but he loves it. He embraces that title. He thinks it's hysterical. You know, I mean, obviously he did not kill the show. The ratings right. were horrible, you know, which is why they brought in this new young kid, which uh -huh. is what do, as you well know, when they're dying on the vine, they like to bring in a new, like, cute little kid, you know, <laughs> is that like spices things? <laughs> That's so stupid, but it is what it is, right? And Robbie was the new young kid, and he had that adorable little ball haircut and the John Denver glasses, you know, and everyone said he looked like a John Denver clone, you know, as a young kid. Um, and, uh, and it was great. And he, he only did six episodes of the show. So he didn't, he didn't kill the show, right. but, but then he ended up, uh, being the voice on one of the Ninja Turtles. I think it was Michelangelo. I think he was the voice of that. And then he just did a lot of music and a lot of stuff. And he was in one of the Sharknados, the Sharknado movies. He wrote all the music for the Sharknado movies, mm -hmm. which is incredible. He's really versatile. So he won a Laurel as the co-writer of the theme, you know, the theme. I think we also won Best Ensemble Cast. I mean, we got a lot of awards, which kind of gave me the hope that somehow we would sell this damn thing. Mm -hmm. This wasn't meant to be. So, but that's why, you know what, Vicky? I, I don't know if I have the greatest desire to be back in front of the camera again. Like, there's a role in this drama that actually Robbie created that he thinks I should play. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like a little bit of comic relief. I actually play a bartender mm -hmm. and like a really like happy, glad-handed type of bartender who tells a joke and like is really funny in the midst of this really dark drama, right? I mean, I would do that. I would do that. I would do like one scene every now and then, but I don't want to necessarily be the star of a show. I, I don't. I don't know if I want all that weight on my shoulders, to be honest with you. I get it. But I did briefly discuss with you before we came on, and within the last few days, I am thinking about doing a Facebook Live show, mm -hmm. or perhaps a YouTube show, or we could do the Facebook Live, and that could be recorded and then ultimately uploaded to YouTube. Yeah, um, well, that's what's going to happen with this. It, it right. will on Facebook, and then tonight it'll go up on YouTube. Yeah, well, a good friend of mine named Steve Grillo, who was Howard Stern's intern for years in the beginning of Howard's run, you know, when they first went to K-Rock in New York City, Stephen was his intern, his number one guy. Well, Stephen owns his own network now called the uh, Aftershock XL Network, and they're on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple, they have a channel on YouTube, with, you know, and, and they're getting subscribers. They're slowly building their brand. They have four shows on their network now, and Steve and I are talking about maybe me being the fifth show. Nice. So am I going to make money from it? Probably not, you know, but the show centers around former child stars. So, and I certainly have a big pool to fish from, you know, right. and, and go fishing in that pond. Right. Uh, 
and uh, we'll see. Again, that wouldn't happen until next year, you know, maybe the springtime. I don't know. We'll see how long it takes, but I'm not in a hurry. So that's it. Well, Mason, I, I'm so glad. You know, we talked about doing this. You, I had, you were scheduled to do this with me a long time ago. When you I was know, in L. I think I was either going to have you do it when I came to New York and we were going to do it there do it live in person, when you, or when you were out here doing your thing. And I think you just got too caught up in it. And well, you for a while, it. I was coming out to L.A. like three times a year yeah. for like a month at a time. I haven't actually been in L.A. for a little over two years now. Um, November of, of 18 was the last time I was actually there. So it's just over two years now. Um, I like it out there. I always have fun when I come out there. I always do. I love the warm weather. You know, I I love, I have a good time. I love a lot of family and friends out there. A lot of cousins, you know, first cousins that live in LA. Some live in San Clemente, San Onofre. Um, I have good friends that live in Studio City. You know, a lot of the former child actors. I don't know if you even know this, but there's a group on Facebook, but it's a private group called the XCA, Ex-Child Actors. And there's about 220 of us in the group. And we communicate on there and say hi. But what we do is, and honestly, not to take credit for it, but I'm going to take credit for it. Whenever I come to LA, I form a luncheon. Oh, nice. That we, that we usually do on Saturday afternoons. We talked about that. Yeah, and we usually do it at Jinkies, which is a wonderful, like, brunch breakfast place in Studio City. And we end up taking, like, five or six tables all the way in the back in the porch, you know, the outside area. Right. And we just laugh our asses off. Usually, and it's not a big group. It's usually anywhere from, like, 10 to 15 people. One time we had 23 of us. That was quite a lot of people. But usually it's anyone that can come on a Saturday afternoon. Some people live too far away, whatever. But a lot of really fun people come to this little luncheon. Peterson, and I'm the guy that puts it all together. Paul Peterson came and did my living room. Ken Osmond did my living room. Let me, let me tell you something about Paul. Hold on one second. I'm just rebooting you again. Because yeah, you disappeared. You've heard, you've heard, yeah, you've heard Hold on. Paul Peterson is, without a doubt, one of the sweetest men I've ever met in my life. That man has a heart of gold. Mm -hmm. And single-handedly, with very little help, by the way, mm -hmm. he has put so many protections in place for child actors. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was instrumental in, in putting laws in place. I mean, he's probably spent half of his life up in Sacramento, California with the state legislature. Mm -hmm. Because at one period of time, I can't speak about it now, but at one period of time, there were more laws in place to protect a dog than there was to protect a kid actor. They actually could work a kid actor harder than a dog. Wow. So the, what he's done single-handedly, and again, with very little help, not a lot of like spotlight on him either, mm -hmm. because that's not what he's about. Right. He's about changing the laws and protecting child actors. That has been his mission for 30 years. Maybe you know better even than I do. Mm -hmm. And I mean, technically, I'm a part of the company, you know, um, uh, 
but the problem is I live in New York City mm-hmm. and I really can't be of that much help. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are kids that work on Broadway mm-hmm. and if he wanted me to go up to Albany, New York, which is our capital here, mm-hmm. if he wanted me to, I'd be happy to mm-hmm. on, on behalf of uh, you know the organization, but not really sure what help I could do. I always said to Paul, I said, listen, if I ever do move to LA, which may or may not happen, I said, please know that I am your guy. Because mm-hmm. Paul's health is not that good now. And mm-hmm. he really doesn't have the energy. And, you know, he wears an oxygen tank when he goes out in public. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's getting harder and harder for him to move and to, to get around. And I said, look, if you want a guy to shake hands and kiss babies, I'm the guy. Mm-hmm. Because... I'm, I'm smart enough, I'm educated enough, and I'm eloquent enough that I can go out there and talk to the people that make the changes out there. And, and I would do anything for Paul, but he, he really has never asked. Uh, maybe if I did spend more time out there, you know, in LA, I, I would. Um, a few years ago, a bunch of us got together and did an autograph show at the Hollywood Museum to raise funds for the the organization which is by the way called a minor consideration right. for the people who don't go out there look it up mm-hmm. it's a wonderful organization mm-hmm. and again no one's looking for spotlight no one's looking for credit no one's looking to make money off of it it is a complete nonprofit organization and it just it, it, it helps kid actors but the one thing that paul really brought to the table was the fact that Paul had been an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. that he had been a drug abuser in his younger life. Mm -hmm. And he counseled so many child actors that are in the business that either had fallen down that rabbit hole or were about to fall off the cliff. Mm -hmm. And he talked them down from the ledge, so to speak. And that was the beauty of Paul, was that he was able to talk to anyone and everyone because he'd been there and done it. And he knew it. And he understood sometimes the pitfalls that can happen to a lot of people in our business. Mm-hmm. And that's no reflection on the people in the business. That's just, you know, what happens when a lot of young people are given power and fame. And money and have money to yeah. 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 And but you know, that it, it it's it's a sad subject. And there was a documentary film that was made. Um, I don't. I don't actually know really if anything was done with it. I know that um, John Travolta's brother, named Joey Travolta, was the guy that we used his studio and his offices. And but I don't know if the film was ever completed. But I was asked to do the film, and I said, "But wait a minute! I've never had a drink in my life. I've never done drugs. I've never." They said, no, that's exactly why we do want you to do the film, mm-hmm. because we want you to speak from your truth mm-hmm. and explain to the, to the public out there that really are naive and have no concept that there is a way to get through the tunnel and out to the other side without falling into that hole mm-hmm. and without going through that disparity. You know, I've never, I've just never been through it. So they wanted to use me as kind of like the counterweight to say, look, guys, it's possible. You can come out the other end of this thing 
relatively unscarred. I mean, mentally, I'm as screwy as anybody on the planet. But, you know, drugs and alcohol were just not my thing. For me, it was Entenmann's and pizza and, you know, fried foods. And, uh, you know. Give for a slice of New York pizza, I would kill for a piece of New York. Yeah, it's the best. I mean, I, I thought I found a good place in L.A. called Joe's Pizza on Hollywood Boulevard, which is actually a New York pizzeria that they brought out to L.A. Joe's and I, New York is my favorite pizza. It's the best. It's the best. And, and, and I've never been to another place that compares to it. I mean, I've heard Chicago does a mean slice of pizza, but it's a very different slice of pizza. It's not like a New York slice of pizza. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been all over the country and I've never... In, or a bagel, or bagel for that matter. A lot of people talk about New Haven, Connecticut pizza. Have you ever had pizza okay. there? No, actually, I, I never have. But everybody no. talks about it. Okay. Next time, if I'm in, uh, if I'm in that area, I, I, I mean, I mean, I've been to places in Brooklyn. I've been to places in the Bronx, like on Defarias. Arthur Avenue. In the Bronx. You've been to Defarias? I have been in Defarias. I've been to L and B mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. I've been there. That was an amazing. But there. It's about the Sicilian slice, mm-hmm. not the regular triangle, right. you know, slice that we're really used to eating. But that Sicilian was one of the best I've ever had in my life. So, you know, right. it's New York is amazing. It's a great city. And I don't want to get I don't want to fall down that rabbit hole, but New York's in trouble. New okay, York is you know, I, we've been talking for over two and a half hours, but I have to ask you a last question. Yeah. You've seen seen shooting this shit, so you know that I have the COVID crazies that are my people. How how have you been faring through through this? Well, okay. So first I want to say I've had some problems with my lower back. I have arthritis in my L4, L5, L3, 4, 5. So I actually have a mobility scooter Mm -hmm. that I kind of like drive around. It's got a basket so I can go shopping. It's Uh actually got a little basket in the front. You showed one of the pictures, I think, in your in your banner, right? And you, the last time we had lunch, you were driving around in it. Yeah. yeah. So the one good thing was that even when the city was basically like barren and desolate, what I would do is I would get on the scooter and I would go up and down the bike lanes of Amsterdam Avenue in Columbus, where I knew I wasn't going to be in physical contact with anybody. Right. right? And I would, just to clear my head, to feel the oxygen going through my nose and, you know, just to, to feel some level of physical contact with humanity mm-hmm. was very important for me during the whole thing. Otherwise, I think I would have, you know, hung myself, you know, I mean, it was so crazy. But I posted a little video, just about a minute long, right on the corner from where I live on the Upper West Side. And it was barren. It was a Sunday afternoon where normally the streets would be bustling and hustling and, you know, car horns and sirens and, you know, really just you know, a, a crazy place to be like New York City right. is. Right. And it was eerily silent. And then going up and down a little later on, like maybe May or June, just noticing store after store after store boarded up out of business out of business, gone. Places that had been in business for 30 years. There's a restaurant that I love called La Caridad on 77, I 78th. I can't believe La Caridad is closed. I know. I mean, how many decades was that place uh, there? Way it's more gone. than 30. We're, we're talking probably 70 years for La Caridad. Gone. It's gone because they couldn't afford to pay the rent because New York City has such exorbitant rents anyway, you know. Yeah. And then when you're making no money, 
and all you can do is delivery and you know takeout. Yeah. You can't. And I know that LA is in lockdown right now. A good friend of mine, Matthew, just lost his job. He was running a place in Beverly Hills. He got he got laid off. I mean, there's just nothing you can do, you know. I haven't but been able to since March. Most of us have been out of work since March. Yeah, yeah. It's it's devastating. And you know, of course, I can only speak for New York, but I mean, just to, to, to walk around the streets, or Mike, a scoot around the streets, and just see so many places out of business and gone. And they're never going to come back. No. And then theater, gone. I mean, who knows if it's even going to come back in 2021. They're saying maybe late summer, fall, maybe. Right. right. You know, if, it depends on the if, It depends on the vaccine. Right. right. It depends on the success of the vaccine. I mean, I'm sure every theater actor is going to want to take that vaccine if they can, you know, if it ends up being vetted and and uh, and safe and secure to take. Uh, hold on one second. I'm just going to reboot you, but I'll look in the camera. Um, we can still see you, but actually yeah. that, you know, they found out today that two of the people that took it yesterday, the two of the first people in London, uh, I had, saw that. had an allergic reaction. Horrible, horrible allergic reactions. Yeah. And I believe that was the Pfizer vaccine, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it is. Well, that uh, that's scary. Um, you know, I, I was that have that carry EpiPens that have anaphylactic. They're not going to yeah. probably be able to take the vaccine. Okay, so people who basically live with seizures. Well, people who no, like people who are allergic to like peanuts and they carry an EpiPen. Oh, like, right, right, right. Peanuts, yeah. bee stings, and all things like yeah, that. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. right. Okay, so not epileptic people. No, I don't think so. Okay, so. well, again, you know, people talk about New York. And I love New York, and it's the greatest city in the world as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. However, however, we're, to use a boxing analogy, we're kind of in a standing eight count right now. We, we got knocked down to the canvas really hard, and we're not really up yet. You know, they're, they're, they're still counting us, and I think it's going to be three to five years, honestly before New York City makes an economic comeback and a spiritual comeback. Mm -hmm. I don't I will think it'll take that long for the spiritual comeback. I, okay. New York's very, New Yorkers are very resilient. I agree. Resilient. So I agree. I, I, I don't, I hope it's not that, I hope it's not that long. I hope, yeah, well, I hope so too. But I will say one thing, at least in my little neck of the woods, the Upper West Side, when I would go on my scooter and scoot around for 30 to 60 minutes, you know, just to, like I said, to get fresh air, I can honestly say that out of the hundreds and hundreds of people that I saw walking, bicycling, whatever they were doing, they were all wearing masks. Great. So that made me feel good. Mm -hmm. I heard about some parties in Chelsea and down by the river where people were congregating in the little parks over there and they were not. That was a little discouraging, but you know, then you read about all over the country where people are just, they don't give a fuck because mm -hmm. it ain't nothing but the flu. Yeah. You know? yeah. And these young people think they're bulletproof. Mm -hmm. They think that they're immortal, like nothing's going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Statistically speaking, it's not young people. We get that. Doesn't mean you can't get it. And it doesn't, doesn't mean you can't give it to everybody else. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. That's exactly right. And when I heard that 7 million people flew over Thanksgiving, 
was like, oh God. Oh my God. You're, you're assholes. You're just, you're nuts. I mean, you know, right? My, my, my girlfriend, who's right now in Pittsburgh, her family lives in Boston. Mm-hmm. For the last two Christmases, I have flown to Boston to be with her family at Christmas. Not this year. Sorry. You know, she's going to go. She's actually going to take the Greyhound bus and go, but I'm not going. And I said, I hope you understand. It's, it's nothing to do with you or your parents, but, you know, I'm not going to take that chance. I'm just not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's, Mason, it's brutal. Mason. Well, I hope that we have um, good news and miracles to talk about the next time we chat. Ah, um, yes, that would be nice. But let me know if there's any way I can help you as you're getting yourself set up on your uh, ah, yes. And yes, well, I did, I did reach out to you for a couple of words of advice. Um, you know, the, the nice thing is that if, if all I'm doing is a Facebook Live, I don't really need my friend Steve to do that, obviously. Uh, but if I do want to do like an actual podcast, then right. where I have a, a producer and a graphics guy and someone to balance the sound and, you know, make it look professional, switch it from one camera to another, you know, that kind of thing, like he's doing for these other shows then obviously I would reach out to Steve and we would, you know, figure something out. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Well, I wish you great luck with it, no matter what it is. And don't give up. Wow. On it. You never know what will happen. Almost two hours and 45 minutes. Almost. I've, I've, the only show I've done this long, I think, was with Lee Sklar. I think that's the longest show I wow. ever did. And and um, Isai Morales, we, we did about oh, we did about God. this much time. <laughs> the last time, the last time, hold on, the last time I saw Isai Morales was in L.A. Obviously, yeah. We have a very good mutual friend named Sammy Phillips, who was a penthouse pet back, I think, in 1990. I think maybe 92. Mm-hmm. So she's our mutual, you know, thing. But I met Isai many times. I met him in China Club in L.A. and the whole thing. Right. We. I was actually in LA for one of my one months that I was out there, just chilling out, doing nothing. And Sammy calls me up and says, Isai and I are gonna go to, we're gonna go get one hour foot massages. You wanna go? And the three of us ended up sitting next to each other getting foot massages in Hollywood. <laughs> Only in Hollywood, baby. Only in Hollywood. Is that I'm gonna happens. I'm gonna send him a text in a few minutes and tell him. Ah, no, I love Isai. He's 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 talk about a good hearted guy. Very wonderful. And and super, super talented, mm-hmm. you know. But he's got, he's got such a great outlook on life, too. And, you know, he's, he has moments where he's very zen. You know, he's, he's, very, he's very focused, you know, which I wish I could be more like. I'm a little bit splayed out sometimes. Um, but uh, that was a damn good foot massage, though. <laughs> nice. Nice. He was he was so great on Ozark. That was such a great turn for him. I never saw it. Oh, he he's bad to the bone. He's really good. First season of Ozark. He's great. I like seeing him play a villain. That's good. He is so bad. He is so yeah. bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you don't think of him as a villain, you know. He's you, you know, bad. Guy. Yeah, because he's such a sweet guy, and you know, a lot of his roles are good guys. And then all of a sudden, well, but La Bamba, uh, he wasn't so good in La Bamba. Well, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, Richie Valens, yeah. 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 Oh, he's a great guy. Please say hi for me. He's really, lo- he's a lovely guy. He's I a will. lovely guy. All right. I love you. Thank you love so you. much for doing this. It was so wonderful. And to thank you for watching, guys. I don't even know who you are, but thank you. 
Well, you'll go on the thread later. You'll see yeah, all this stuff. Because on my end, I don't see who's asking any questions. So, I mean, I could look down at my phone, but that would be very distracting. Yeah. That's, or, I'm, I'm, that's why I'm only or, like. Or I, could be doing, or I could be doing this the whole show. <laughs> well, no, that's why I've been sort of like glancing over and seeing little things. But, yeah. but we'll, we'll go back in and we'll answer the questions. Oh, we'll I totally will. I totally will. Thank you so much. I love you. Love Have you. a rest of your night. Thank you all for joining us. I'll see you next week with the part two of Wadi Wachtel. You know what? Oh, I love Wadi. <laughs> I don't know him personally, but I love his guitar playing. He's amazing. And he's still got that great head of hair, too. It's amazing. The unbelievable hair. Yeah. Oh, he always had the best hair. Yeah. But what a career that guy's had. Oh, my God. I love you. Love you. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody.